Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we discuss the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online, except this week. I mean, I guess, I guess we are still discussing those films, but this is our annual top movies of the year episode. I am John Negroni, as always, from San Francisco Bay Area, film editor for theyoungfolks.com. He is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the freelance writer you love to love. It's Will Ashton. What's up? We have a long-anticipated episode here, Will. I mean, I feel like the top 10 movies of the year it, it tends to be one of our biggest of the year sure makes people, sense. people always want to yeah they want to jump in they want to be like all right guys just just give me the brass tacks what do i need to know about yeah let's cut the fluff let's get to the good stuff yeah i get it yeah they didn't how many hours of cinemaholics did we do this entire year helping you all decide what you want to watch on a weekly basis having you know articulate discussions about these thought-provoking films and you just want to you just want to you know cut the fat and get right to the good stuff which mm-hmm. i can respect but uh you know some people would say the fat's the good stuff but that's not sure, that's what I think. you know yeah. like us like losing our minds talking about uh <laughs> space jam 2 you know i think that's the heart of uh cinemaholics but you know people space can disagree jam too. don't don't give away my number one all right sure, there you go all right well yeah as the episode implies we're gonna go through our top tens it's gonna be a little bit different this year now i know in previous years our our top movies episode sometimes we just we go all out we're just like we got voicemails you know we have listeners calling in we do all kinds of extra stuff we're not doing anything different we're not doing anything Mm. like extra this year mainly because speak for yourself i I might go extra (laughs) who knows yeah you have a couple of uh unplanned you know gimmicks and bits yeah we'll see what happens yeah okay i will i will hope for the worst but uh, no, I, I, my excuse this year, the last year was more of the pandemic. It was just sort of like, let's just keep it simple. We had three people, us and Abigail Chessie, and that was good enough. You know, I feel like we had a good a good rundown there. This year, it's just like, I got I got a wedding coming up. <laughs> like, sure. Wedding planning, full swing. I, I really just, you know, prioritizing all of that. Uh, I got you. So, you know. I can understand. This will still be great. Well, the listeners understand that's a, that's a whole other discussion, I guess. Yeah, we'll do the wedding episode at some point. Put uh, it on the air. Uh, I'd appreciate yeah, yeah. that. That'd be fun. Yeah, you should just uh, record it, you know, just be kind of like, yeah, here we go. Um, I'm still under the assumption that you're coming. It's like one of those things. This bit will never get old. The day of the wedding, I'll be like, he'll be here any minute. Yeah. Melissa's like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, is he coming? He's like, oh, oh, hang on, hang on. Like, we, 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 you know, your dad's like checking his watch. Yeah. All your groomsmen are just sitting casually. And then sure enough, I come running down from the airport, all that. Yeah. yeah with a microphone in yeah. your hand. <laughs> all right. Well, let's first start off with what's, what's our general impression of 2021 in film? Got to get it out of the way. 2020 was a disruptive year, the most disruptive year of our lifetimes. 2021 was uh, interesting. Yeah. It was like an extension of that disruption. And then a lot of a lot of waves, you know, some some high points, some low points going back to theaters, uh, theaters kind of being in this weird limbo state that they're in right now, where some movies like Spider-Man No Way Home will make tons of money. But then other movies like Nightmare Alley or Nakanto or all kinds of other things will barely make anything. So we're in a weird time. But generally, Will, what's your what's your take on 2021 in film? Uh, in film? Uh it was interesting, I think, looking back on it, or at least living through it, I I felt it was a fairly underwhelming year. Uh, a lot of the bigger films I was looking forward to from now, like, two years prior, 
didn't always live up to my expectations. And there were some films that like I liked, but I think I didn't like as much as you or maybe as much as I had hoped. But making this list and compiling all the films I'd seen either, you know, from this past year or from TIFF uh, the year prior that I finally well, had, had finally come out. Uh, I was able to look back and be like, you know what? And also Sundance from the previous year and be like, you know what? This was a good year. You know, I mean, it wasn't a great year, I don't think. But I think there are a lot of really outstanding films that came out this year. And I have 10 films of on my list here that I feel really confident in. And I feel like are worth celebrating for a variety of reasons, both similar and different. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, overall, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking 2022. I'm hoping. I don't want to jinx it. But I think <laughs> 2022 is going to be an outstanding year for film just based on what's coming out. But this year is pretty solid overall. How, how about you, though? Well, I, I have to be clear, you know, my list is probably similar to yours in the sense that there aren't a lot of blockbusters here. I don't think any, really, uh, at least not in the traditional blockbuster sense. And that's not because I didn't like any of the blockbusters this year. We'll be going through our honorable mentions as we usually do right before we get into our number ones. We're going to start going through our list. And then once we get to number one, we'll go through all of our honorable mentions. And for me, I'll basically get into like, okay, here's my favorite superhero film of the year. Here's, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, looking at my list, I mean, two two things stick out to me the most. And that's, I think 2021 was a fantastic year for animation. I know you and I are a little bit contentious on this, but I just think there were so many great animated films that came out here. So many animated films in my honorable mentions to the point where I actually think it's a very competitive award season. And speaking of which, I think that we had a really good award season too. I'd say half the movies on my list are from award season, uh, just about. And that's really great to see. I'm always happy to see that. A24, I think, had a much better year this year than last year by and large. Like last year, I think Minari was like kind of the only A24 film I think really stood out to me unless I'm missing one. But this year I have multiple A24 films. So, you know, good year for Neon. Have a couple of Neon films on here too. It's just, I just think it was a good year. I think that if there was anything that was underwhelming to me, it was probably this summer. I think the summer movie season was pretty weak. I feel like spring wasn't that disappointing because we kind of knew that spring was going to be that great. And there were a few things that came out in the spring that did kind of catch my eye that I did enjoy. I enjoyed the, you know, like Cruella and Ryan the Last Dragon and Godzilla versus Kong. They were my my favorite Uh, films, but yeah, I had a good time with them enough. And I think that, you know, there's one film that, uh, that you recently just saw that came out in May that I thought was like really great uh, called Bo Burnham Inside, but uh, we don't we don't have to have a big old discussion because I know you're not the biggest fan of that. It one. was fine. Yeah, um, I yeah I, I don't think I was quite as taken by some of those titles that you mentioned, but I do remember the spring having this sense of like oh like we're vaccinated we can go to the movies again somewhat comfortably and you know that was a a short lived high, but you know even if the movies weren't terrific, there was that you know comfort of being back in the movie theater again. Uh, a little bit more safely than before. And, you know, I, I look back on that time somewhat fondly for that reason. Um, right. It's very wistful. Sure. <laughs> like pre-Delta, you know, yeah. especially like June, you know. Right. The whole month of June, I think we were just getting back in the swing of things. Starting to get a little bit more comfortable. And yeah. Yeah. So. It all just kind of switched up from there. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I do look at each season a little bit differently. I do agree that the summer movie season uh, was pretty underwhelming this year, but. Um, I, I, I'm not quite as, uh, taken by the animated films as, uh, you were, but there are two animated films on my, um, honorable mention list that we'll discuss in a bit, but yeah, I think it was a really good year for documentaries. I think there are a lot of really solid filmmaker driven films that came out this year that, uh, I really, really liked a lot. So, I mean, you know, had its highs and had its lows, but, uh, you know, some good stuff came out this year. That's what I have to say. Yeah. 
I gotta say what for me documentaries didn't hit me as hard as they did you this year that's that's that'll be a big difference i think between our lists there are no documentaries in my top 10 a few in my uh, honorable mentions though there was one that was almost in my top 10 just barely missed it kind of a last second switch up because i think you know that there was one on my list that you might have been expecting and it's fantastic it breaks my heart to not have it but we'll get all into that in a moment but first we want to say here are the most popular episodes of cinemaholics like we're going to talk about the best films of the year what about the most popular episodes of cinemaholics we don't know which ones are the most you know, are the best episodes. We can't be objective about that. Yeah, you know, we got to get a little bit of navel-gazing into our episodes, so why not? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I always think this is fun. I, I just I'm always like interested a, by it. Yeah, I'm not, I don't mean to be uh, dismissive. Yeah, I, I think this is interesting it, for me. Yeah. It's it's less about, like, here's how popular we are. It, to me, it's more interesting of, like, here are the movies that, like, our listeners were most interested in. Right. I guess that they were not just downloading, but sharing and stuff. That, mm-hmm. to me, is what's interesting. Yeah. Because uh, I see the traffic. I see stuff that gets shared, and that's really what drives a lot of our ep- download counts. So hmm. we'll start with the number five. That's Bo Burnham Inside, which, you know, we just mentioned that. And yeah, I think that it was a very popular episode. I think Bo Burnham Inside in general has been really popular with people. I've seen it everywhere. You know, I've seen it memeified. I, I hear the music everywhere. I think it actually, of almost everything I think we're talking about today, had the biggest cultural impact. Uh, in terms of movies, uh, definitely, if you dis- if you don't count like a couple of superhero movies that came out, I think this was like probably the most like I don't want to say essential movie of 2021, but certainly one of the one of the ones that's really going to last the test of time. I think, uh, but I know it wasn't your favorite, so you know don't have to um, harp on that. It's not in my top ten, so you know. yeah, I don't know if it's going to last the test of time, but it'll be an interesting uh, time capsule to be sure. But um, I, yeah, I think we can at least agree there. Right. Our next one here. Our fourth most popular episode, very weird. And I've seen this movie just like tick up and I'm just like, what is it about this movie? I did not realize that people cared about this movie as much as they did. And that uh, is Vivo. Yeah, I was just going to say people marched to the beat of their own drum. (laughs) Yeah, they did. Vivo on Netflix. That's the animated uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda Mm -hmm. whole thing uh, where it's like a kickajou or whatever. And sure, I didn't love the music in it. I think that was like when I really hit peak Lin-Manuel Miranda fatigue. And then Encanto kind of won me back because I actually thought that that was a really good effort. But yeah, this was one of those animated movies that I'm like, this does not to me represent how good animated movies were this year, but it's not bad or anything. In fact, I think I told you when I was at Disneyland in November, I literally saw somebody watching a view on their phone while waiting in line. And I'm just like, you know what? That's what the kids want. Sure. I just find that interesting because I mean, I haven't listened back to that conversation, but I don't remember us being uh, particularly strong on the film one way or the other as i'm wont to say uh so i i don't quite know why that conversation i think it comes down to people were like who's reviewing this movie anybody right (laughs) and we were we were like the lone voices in the wilderness you know we'll do it we'll talk about you well i mean i hope you know i'm glad people got something out of that conversation certainly Yeah. yeah i think we could maybe similarly look at that for the same for our number three which is tom and jerry a spring live action animated hybrid movie that came out on HBO Max. And I think it's the same kind of thing. Like, I just don't think a lot of podcasts were talking about Tom and Jerry, but it was a box office hit. Maybe, you know, it was one of those early, like, you know, the vaccine wasn't out yet, but I think people were kind of getting more comfortable with going back to theaters already. And I think they they wanted to see them some Tom and Jerry. They couldn't resist. Yeah. I mean, not a film I thought about a lot or really remembered came out this year, but uh, I... My eyebrows were definitely raised when I heard that was our number three most popular episode, to be sure. All right. Well, then it's all come down to this. Our number two and our number one. Our number two 
is to all the boys I've loved before, always and forever. Another Netflix movie. I think I'm sensing here because there were a lot of other Netflix movies mm. like high up in terms of our popular sure. episodes. Like Don't Look Up, I think is like killing it. Mm-hmm. I what do you, What do you make of that? Is it because Netflix is so accessible? I mean, Tom and Jerry was accessible, right? Through HBO Max. Do you think that has a lot to do with it? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would like to think that it was our spirited conversation. Um, I, I remember having fun talking about that film with you, but uh, I, I think it's for similar reasons that you have mentioned already, which is this, that uh, that movie has a built-in audience. People were, you know, very uh, enthusiastic and had strong feelings about that film. And I don't think a lot of people went out of their way to review it because it was the third installment in a YA franchise that people uh, I think we're kind of getting tired of by installment number two for various reasons. So sure, sure. I, I think seeing, you know, two uh, adult grown men uh, hash it out about this teen <laughs> romance was something that yeah. a lot of people found comfort in. And if that's the case, I'm really happy to hear it. They sure did. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of how like uh, the Billie Eilish documentary was also pretty high up in our most popular episodes. And I, it makes me think like if we had done Kissing Booth 3, I bet that would have been an all-timer in terms of downloads. Who knows? But Sure. Never but saw those said, films, but, you know. Sure. I would, would I have seen them for this film or for this uh, podcast? Probably. 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 So, so far, the four films we've talked about have all been streaming films. Almost all of them have been Netflix. One of them was HBO Max. Because uh, I didn't even mention Bo Burnham Inside was Netflix, right? But our number one, our most popular episode of the year this is not a streaming exclusive. I think it's only available video on demand. It was in theaters over the summer. And that is M night Shyamalan's old. Will, what in the world? Like how did, and old isn't just our most popular episode. It's our most popular episode by a mile and a half. Mm. Uh, that was an episode where it was me and just Kimber Myers. Right. So my thing thinking here is that people clicked in the episode and were like, Whoa, an episode that Will's not on. Sure. I got to tell everybody. Yeah. Ring the <laughs> bell. No, you're good. Uh, I mean, you know, I'd like to think it's because Kimber finally came back on the show and people were so enthusiastic to yeah. see her return that they had to let everyone know. Um, yeah, I mean, that film was, uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about with you, as you mentioned. Um, and I wish I did because I had uh, differing thoughts um, to you. Yeah, you're, and you're much more positive, right? Compared to the two of us. I have my problems with the film, but I think that movie is better than you two give it credit. Um, and I definitely liked it more than, say, Corella or Bo Burnham's Inside. I found it more uh, emotional, I guess. Uh, and I, I, I certainly can understand some of the criticisms and I don't understand others. But it's a film that uh, it stuck with me. I actually debated putting it on my honorable mentions and I didn't because I don't think I liked it that much. But I did like it uh, considerably more than I think you and Kimber did. But uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought it was going to make your honorable mentions pretty no, easily. I but mean, uh, I was wrong about that. No, I mean, there are some movies like Champion. And even despite you uh, having your grievances, for instance, uh, Best Summer Ever is not in my honorable mentions, but it's a film I will oh, continue to champion. Despite the your movie that you uh, gave me so much grief for not loving, and it's a good film. Like, in my opinion, mm, I, I think it's a very even sweet, make your honorable mentions. It's doesn't a very it. sweet and personal film, and I think it's uh, one that's worth champion. But uh, it's I don't think it's quite up there with, you know, the top 30 of the year, unfortunately. But it's uh, it's a musical that I think is worth seeing anyhow. And I think it's better than you give it credit. So fair enough. Fair enough. So, well, we're not doing the Rotten Tomatoes game this week for obvious reasons. Well, what will we do it on? Yeah. But I I do want to play the highest grossing films game with you. 
what do you think is the most highest grossing film of 2021? This is easy. Well, it's probably Spider-Man, right? Yeah, yeah, by a mile and a half. I mean, it's the only film that grossed over a billion this year. Uh, the only American film that even came close. I mean, it was at, it's at 1.5 billion right now and counting. There are a few other films, a few Chinese films that made plenty of money, like uh, close to a billion, but not quite. But what do you think? This is the hard one, though. What do you think is the second highest grossing film worldwide in 2021? Worldwide or domestic? Worldwide. Uh, worldwide. Um, hmm. The American film, just to be well, American like English language. You, I well, don't want to like put it in a box, you know. I think worldwide it's F nine, but I think domestically it's Song Chi. Is that right? No, Song Chi is number nine right now worldwide. Oh, I don't no, know no, that's, domestically. I'll look at that too. Oh, but domestic, yeah. I think uh, for my answer for your initial question was okay. F nine. I think that's the second highest. I'll look at the domestic too in a second. Right. But yeah, no, it's it's not F nine. F nine is the third. Oh, okay. The second one is No Time to Die. Oh, okay. That actually makes, close, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which really climbed. And then Godzilla vs. Kong, which Godzilla vs. Kong was up there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And then Shang-Chi and then Eternals. Hmm. Now, if I look at the... Uh, I'll look up the 2021 domestic right now. 21 domestic box office. I uh, haven't seen it in a little bit, but yeah, obviously Spider-Man is number one. And hey, look, you, well, you were right that Shang-Chi is number two domestically. Good job. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, is <laughs> it number Venom. three, Venom? Yeah. Yeah, Venom's number three. Then Black Widow. That's surprising. Widow, I thought yeah. F9 would be above Black Widow, but no oh well. Uh, Eternals, No Time to Die. And then we have a few that weren't in the uh, list before, and that's A Quiet Place Part 2. That's not too surprising. Ghostbusters Afterlife. I actually didn't know it did that well. Yeah. And then Free Guy. So a, a lot of these movies we're not going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I don't think we're talking about any of these movies, but um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think any of those came close to topping my uh, end of the year list. I guess the closest would maybe be No Time to Die. Um, the which... closest I would get to my honorable mentions is Spider-Man No Way Home, for sure. Okay. But okay, that that is the uh, that's like a bit of a box office recap. Let's get into what you came for. The top sure. 10 films of the year, according to me and Will. And Will, we'll start with you. Wait, are what we doing... Number... Uh, what? Did uh, I forget something? The things we didn't see, kind of doing a roundup of... Uh... Oh, yeah, I did forget about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Will, what, what what are the movies that you couldn't get to? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I always like to point this out because I, I, I worry that somebody's going to be like, hey, how come this one wasn't on your list? And it's because I didn't see it or I didn't like it as much as you. But in this case, I did not see... Drive My Car, unfortunately. I didn't see Parallel Mothers yet. I haven't seen Bad Luck Bang or Looney Porn. I haven't seen Memoria. I haven't seen Days. I haven't seen haven't seen Azor or What We Do When We Look at the Sky or This Is Not a Barrel. It's a Resurrection or Emma or The Rescue or Old Henry or Wife of a Spy or The Pink Cloud or France or Pro- Procession or Prayers for the Stolen or Pebbles or I didn't finish uh, one that I actually liked a good bit, but I can't count it because I didn't get the end of it. It's uh, There Is No Evil which is an Iranian mm. anthology film. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, Deeply, all those yeah. um, did not get into the my timeline. So unfortunately, they're not uh, eligible for me, at least. Yeah. How about you? A lot of those I haven't seen either. And one of those in particular that I, I really want to see at some point is this is not a burial, it's a resurrection. Yeah. I, I really want to see that. And a few others that you mentioned, like Emma and the Rescue, and they all, they look very good. There was one movie that came out last year that I still haven't seen, The Climb, which continues to be a climb oh, yes. for me to see it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I hope you get a chance to see frustrating. that. Yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, me too. I like that one a good bit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I also haven't seen City Hall yet. Sorry to tell you. Uh, and speaking of... 
But yeah, the, really I, I'll just mention three because there's a bunch, but I just wanted to fixate on three of them because I know that I'm going to be seeing them as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hand of God, which I started but haven't finished. Uh, uh, Wheel of I Fortune like and one. Fantasy, which I know. I, yeah, Wheel of Fortune one. and Fantasy I'm hoping to watch this week. Yeah. And A Hero, the Amazon film. So oh, I've seen that one as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I have thoughts on all those, but maybe we'll discuss those later. Yeah. yeah well, hey, I don't know. They make your list. Who's to say? Who's to say? Um, okay. So our top tens of the year. And well, what's it, what's your best guess for how many films you saw in 2021? I'm at 257. So I, I, I figure you're not far from that, either below or you could be below. You could be like above. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean... So the way I do it, I just kind of tally all my first watches together. I don't do the um, like it, I don't individualize it as far as the new releases. But last year was a uh, a new benchmark for me. I'd seen. Let me look at the number exactly. Whoop! It was it was three hundred eighty first watches for me, and uh, I I have seen already twelve films from this year or mm-hmm. this past year. I mean, uh, catching up for this episode right here. Uh, so, uh, and I saw several at TIFF that were also now 2021 film. So I don't know. It's probably somewhere in the ballpark of like, like 200 something movies. I, I wish I had more exact number, but I don't have one on top of my head, but yeah, I know you have, uh, you have it all knocked down to a science, so I won't take the, (laughs) uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Over the course of the year, I, I look through everything that I do and, you know, all that stuff. Like, I try, I, I keep a, a running ranking over the course of the year. And, yeah, it takes a lot of time. Um, I'm actually bringing up my 2021 first entries here, or like first watches, uh, or I'm trying to bring that up now. I don't I don't see it as readily. Where, where do you find that? Find what? Where, where do you find um, how many films that you, like, Oh, watched? I make a list. On Letterboxd. Oh, on Letterboxd. Anyone that wants to follow oh. me will see it. Uh, okay. I see. Yeah, I always make yeah, a I list. Can't, I yeah. can't see how many first watches I have this year. I imagine it's around 300 or so, probably. Sure. Uh, I, it'd have to be over because I, I, I rewatch a lot of things. That's the thing, though. I don't I don't log everything that I rewatch on Letterboxd. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So mm. it's... I imagine I watched anywhere from 50 to 100 films for the first time um not counting like classic films yeah, and stuff say, like that yeah, but not counting the the uh new films the rewatches yeah, and the yeah. rewatches as well i'd have to look into it but anyway that is that is enough of that we got it we got to get this thing going let's talk about our favorite films of the year sure starting with our number 10s will what is your number 10 movie of 2021 starting with me all right uh so my number 10 film uh is one that I guess wouldn't be too surprising, but it's one that's probably going to be uh, divisive uh, for you, at least. It is a little French film called Titan. Um, oh, boy. Am I pronouncing that right or is it Titane? I think it's Titan. I think I, you said it right. Yeah, okay. So that is the sophomore film and the Palme d'Or winning film from, let me see if I can pronounce her name right, uh, Julia Dacaradnu. I think it's Ducourneau. Ducourneau, okay. I, I, I don't say that confidently. Right. I apologize. There are several names on this list that I, I know I'm going to butcher. I have a bad habit of it. and I, it, it isn't me trying to be lazy or arrogant. I just am very bad at name pronunciations. But anyway, uh, so as, as uh, anyone that listened to our 2017 episode would know, uh, Raw was like one of those movies that just felt like a revelation to me. It was such a fresh, vivid film in terms of how it tackled its central metaphor that I just knew I had to look out for this filmmaker and 
and see what she did next. And I certainly had very high expectations for this sophomore film. And while it didn't quite reach, I think, the same heights as that previous film, um, it's another film that I just find to be incredibly accomplished and also oddly quite moving. I, I feel like people, when they saw Raw, they were quick to kind of dismiss it as being a little bit more interested in being grotesque without really uh, diving into some of the more humanity, uh, the more humane elements of that of those characters. And I think that was something that was uh, also unfairly said about the this film here, Tatan. But for me, I think um, what it often reveals in these kind of perversions is often kind of more reflective and even sort of majestic in some, uh, in some odd sort of ways. And I think that becomes apparent with the second half of this film, even though the first half is what I think is really kind of more um, uh, conversation worthy as far as like having some of these more kind of uh, outlandish and uh, provoking scenes. For me, what I find so um, enriching about the film is how compassionate it becomes in the second half. I think that primarily comes from the lead performances from Agathy Razal and Vincent Linden. There, there's a, a, a chemistry there that is um, very hard to describe simply, but there's something kind of prickly, but also very resounding about the way they, they kind of come together. And even when the grotesque body horror comes in the way, there's something I find really kind of oddly heart-wrenching about their dynamic together. There's something about this film and how it kind of carefully meditates on just the very nature of transformation in our sort of humane and oddly inhumane response to trauma that I find just very exhilarating and moving. And so I, I guess for me, when I think back on her films, I, I see as her being like they, thinking body horror so much, not so much as being, um, uh, I guess, provocative, but rather using these kind of uh, grotesque subject matters to really say something deep and profound about the very nature of being alive and how it's just kind of scary to have like these human bodies and be a human, but you can ultimately kind of make it through if you have people in your life uh, connected, maybe indirectly or not that make it worthwhile. And for me, uh, I just really like how she approaches film. And I feel like this filmmaker is one that is really doing some, like I said before, revolutionary stuff with the art of film. And every time I watch her stuff, I just feel like I'm getting this jolt, uh, I guess, a very fitting way. And and so I, I find Titan to be a sign of a filmmaker who's only continuing to grow and progress in very meaningful and uh, moving ways. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I felt compelled to put this film at my number 10 spot on this list. All right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not as hot on the film as you are, but I, I think I think it's very respectable, you know, and, and it's a movie that I certainly appreciate more than I don't, you know, and I, I'm really glad that it came out this year, that it had that like effect on so many people because you're clearly not alone. It's a film that I think a lot of people are responding pretty favorably to. So it's cool to see it here. But yeah, like with Raw, it just I guess uh is just not 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 my director. Yeah, not not somebody I think who speaks to me as directly, but what it, you know, that's fine. Doesn't matter. We have other movies that can do that. My number 10 film, super happy to include this one because as I mentioned, I wasn't I wasn't able to see Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, but that director, Rizuki Yamaguchi, managed to come out with another film this year called Drive My Car. And Drive My Car, I'm really thrilled to see that it's, it's getting some awards attention. It won a Golden Globe last night. And I think it's well-deserved. This is a three-hour Japanese film that really just, it's one of the few films that's really stuck with me this year, like in a very like uncomfortable way. It's a movie that I keep coming back to, keep thinking about. It's been a couple months since I saw it, and I just, 
it's it's a movie about loss. It's it's a movie where like when you're watching it, it, it reminds me of the Korean film Burning, where it seems slow. It seems sort of like, okay, what are we getting to? You know, we're kind of following this aging actor who, you know, he's losing his eyesight and you know, he's you know, casting and directing this play called Uncle Vanya that's uh, obviously an adaptation. And but he's doing it in a very unique way. That's all I'll say about that. And you just sort of see him develop this friendship with his driver, you know, this incredibly memorable and unforgettable car, this uh, red, uh, I forget what kind of car it is, but I mean, I would never forget the appearance. It's like instantly iconic. But it's like, I think the only movie that I've seen this year for, or like in general that I want the car, <laughs> I want to drive the car. I'm just not as much, a, as much of a car person as other people. But yeah, if you're looking for like really moving, uh, heart-wrenching storytelling and performances across the board, this is such a surprising movie. This this main this main character played by Tsuyoshi Goro is just he's just so lasting. He just really sticks with you. Also, have to highlight Masaki Kawamura, who plays the supporting here. And yeah, like I said, it's a movie that I'm not going to forget about very easily. It's it's quite wonderful. So that is drive my car. My number ten. Cool, I know yeah. you wanted to see it. Yeah, no, I uh, unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it. I'll be talking about that filmmaker later on, uh, not to spoil my no. uh, honorable mentions. But I think I already spoiled it just because sure. I mentioned the other film you did. But yeah, yeah right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I got very close. I mean, since you mentioned, it, I got very close to putting Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy in my top ten at number ten spot, uh, which would have been fitting, you know, given that we you had his other film on that on your list but at the same time you know we indirectly sort of mirrored each other by having two car films so i guess it worked hey. out yeah good call good call yeah. yeah that's true all right so then let's get into our number nine films of 2021 so starting with you will what is your number nine uh yeah so um my number nine film is a documentary that i saw uh very like about a year ago actually um on a virtual cinema and it's one that i haven't seen a lot of people talk about but it's a film that i've been thinking about quite a lot which is some kind of heaven um so i mean not to get too political but i feel like especially in terms of cinema it's kind of hard to process this what really happened with the trump administration it's just such a chaotic time in our lives that it's really hard artistically i think to make sense of what really just happened there and and really process it in meaningful ways but as we'll discuss with you know another film on my list at least uh the best art I think tends to evaluate not only the subjects directly, but rather like the people that were involved and how, you know, broadly speaking, it affected, you know, America. And I think in terms of this film, uh, some kind of heaven, the, the, the directorial debut from Lance Oberheim, uh, what I find so uh, impressive and ultimately so moving about is that it uses this uh, centerpiece, which is the village, the villages, which is, uh, as the synopsis notes, a manicured facade uh, based in Florida. It's a retirement community that has kind of like these well-to-do elders who are just basically living up their their last years with every basically women indulgence that they want. It's kind of like the opposite of Never Never Land in that like it's sort of like this tacky, glossy senior citizen residence where they can kind of shelter themselves from the outside world and create this almost like bleak utopia where they believe that they're fulfilling the American dream. I, I, I like to equate it as like if Errol Morris made a movie with Harmony Korine characters. That's like kind of like a halfway description of what this this film is. But For me, what I find so interesting is that through this filmmaker, this first time filmmaker, who's I think only like 24 when he made this film, which I find really impressive, uh, he he has such a 
observant way of noticing how empty it is, but how much this is so uh, indirectly meaningful to these people. Like everything about the fakeness of this place is apparent. Like the grass is fake. The, the shopping plazas are just kind of like endless. And these people have like these fake plastered on smiles that you see throughout. But these banal pleasures, like they, it, they have such a uh, meaning to these uh, kind of bewildering, but ultimately beguiling subjects that he focuses on. And I think for me, he finds this, uh, even with their kind of over-the-top uh, personalities, he finds their inherent humanity, what they're really trying to search for in this place that, you know, uh, from an outsider perspective, seems kind of garish and ugly and uh, just sort of a um, kind of just dreary sort of place to live. But, you know, for these people, like, they, they see so much of the world in this place. They, they see it as a place to find love or, like, the wealth that they've been searching for, or wisdom or some sort of economic freedom or something like that. And it's, it's a sort of beautiful and tragic way of looking at the world. And I think through this lens where it's very subjective and intimate but also very observant and reflective, it, it paints this very interesting reflection on what I think America is and how basically someone like Trump could get into office because, you know, it, it's kind of like believing in the lie almost and accepting what is clearly fake is ultimately real. And so for me, it became uh, a really relevant film that I still think about a lot. I don't think it's a great documentary, but it's a really, really good one. And it's one that I've been trying to champion a lot and get people to watch. So that is some kind of heaven. I believe it's available to stream right now on Hulu. It's definitely one worth seeking. I think it's only like 85 minutes too. So uh, if you get a chance, definitely check that one out. Yeah, that's some kind of heaven. And yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because the movie I'm about to talk about is also one that came out Sundance 2020, but didn't get its release until this year. So fun. Um, and that movie for me, my number nine, is The Killing of Two Lovers. And this is a, this is a movie that I, I really hold up. And when people talk to me about films I saw this year that I think were just helpful you know, not just to me, but to other people. I think of this one. Uh, for those of you who may not have caught, I, I think we talked about this film earlier in the year, but because uh, it came out like in May, I want to say, and this is one of the neon films I referred to. And th this movie takes place in Montana. It's about a man who, you know, he's a little bit older uh, or like he, I don't remember how old he was supposed to be, but I think like late 20s, early 30s. So like past sort of like adolescence, but he had children uh, with his like high school sweetheart when they were very young, but she is in the process of separating with him and starting to date somebody else. And this movie is just such a blissful, slow burn of a meditation on something that I, I don't think enough movies are courageous enough to bring attention to. And that is just like the fragility of men and how like men in general are fed all of this pop culture of like what it means to be strong, what it means to be like emotionally, you know, a man and how to be like grown up and all these things. And this is a movie sort of tackling like what men really are, which is like, we're very vulnerable. Like we're, we're sensitive. A lot of us, uh, even the, like the hardest tough nailed, you know, most stoic person, when you really put them through it behind all the aggression, it, there's like this layer of just, you know, men just feeling like alone 
And it, it's such an issue, like I think in the world. And I, I think that it's something that men should help each other with uh, because, you know, we're, we're fellow men. And that's why I love this movie. I think that this movie really gets to the heart of that message, brings it forward in a very entertaining and really artful way. Uh, it's insightful. It's provocative. It has an unbelievably good ending. And I just think it's it's one of those movies that you start off feeling a certain way when you see this character and what he's doing. And over the course of the movie, it deconstructs that expectation in a way that I just think is so profound. And as I can't help saying over and over again, helpful and productive. And what I think films of this era should do more often. You know, you mentioned a film that, you know, is kind of political in nature. It kind of helps us make sense of current events and what the world is like. And I think Killing of Two Lovers is a drama film that uses a really good, not even a metaphor, but an allegory really of you know, how we can relate to each other, you know, even the most extreme versions of ourselves and maybe, you know, this, the path to healing, you know, getting a little bit better and, and dealing with these sorts of things for the sake of everybody, men and women. Uh, so fantastic film. It, it was directed by Robert Macklin. And I, I just, I think this director has a really strong career ahead of him. I think it was his first film, or at least one of his first films. I, I don't recall if it was his debut, honestly. Uh, but I really got to highlight Clayton Crawford, who plays the main actor here is just, uh, tremendous. Uh, so big fan of killing two lovers. And, uh, I think, I think you saw it. Will, cause I think we talked yeah, about it, right? We reviewed it. Yeah. I like the film. Yeah. I didn't, it was in think... Utah. Sorry, not Montana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got I'll... power of the dog. I'm right. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think it hit me quite as deep as it hit you. I haven't been thinking about as much as you have clearly, but it's definitely one I liked a lot. And I agree with you. This filmmaker is one that I'm really excited to see where they go next. Definitely. I mean, it's one of those films that, you know, I, I don't know what the budget is, but I know the film looks way more accomplished than probably what the budget was. And, you know, it, it's very sparse in how it comes together, but it has so many moments that just, uh, just really hit and pack a punch and definitely the lead performance helps with that a lot. So yeah, it's a good film. I definitely would recommend it as well. All right, let's get into our number eight. Will Ashen. Number eight, we haven't done any overlap yet. So far, we got outliers happening. And yeah. uh, I'm curious, though, that might change eventually. What, what's your number eight? Uh, there's going to be no overlap, I know, with this one. Uh, I, I can say that confidently because my number eight film is Annette, which is a film that I remember you were not fond of. And I was, mm. um, I was hey, more look, you're you're yep. not alone. You're not alone. Sure. I'm seeing it on all kinds of top tens. I'm seeing people give it number one. In fact, I'll, I'll highlight uh, Dan Merle, who was on the show this year, oh, yeah. uh, I think twice this year. He uh, he had it as number one film of the year. So, Will, you know, clearly sure. you're onto something. But yeah, I mean, with a film like this, there are certain films that we see throughout the year and uh, we, we have a very instantaneous reaction to them. It's just like, I really like that or I didn't like that at all or that was just a fine film or whatever. But this one... While I liked it when I saw it, I, I think I needed some time to really process it and, and contextualize my feelings on it. I remember when we reviewed the film, I think I was less strong than I feel now. So I would understand if someone was confused listening to that episode and then seeing uh, me put in number eight. But, uh, you know, this film, it's the follow up to Holy Motors. Leo Carax did it like 10 years later. He doesn't make films uh quite as quickly uh some of our filmmakers on this list but uh, as expected it was a fairly divisive film i, I think it's a film that uh you know even divided us uh it's it's, it's a kind of confounding and puzzling film uh, in terms of what it's trying to accomplish but at the same time for me when i think back on the films that that had the most meaning that feel most in sync with what i want out of a cinematic experience uh, annette feels so uniquely individualistic that 
I, I feel it's kind of hard not the champion, especially in a year that was basically over flooding with musicals like 2021. Uh, you know, this film, it has a weird kind of tricky balance where it's so artistically grandiose, but it's also kind of taking the piss out of the very nature of being self-important as an artist. And this balance of having a very self-involved, over-serious comedian, uh, you know, played by Adam Driver quite uh, impactfully, um, forming this kind of unholy bond with this very radiant uh, opera singer played by Marion Cotillard. There's this relationship that forms that's very uh, mysterious and mystique and kind of uh, over the top and ultimately tragic and it mirrors the sort of operaticism of our characters and as well as the sort of brass showmanship of the sort of noxious comedian and I think that kind of mix of like sugar and vinegar it, it makes a taste that's I think going to be very peculiar and something that I can certainly understand people being like I don't really like this at all but I think you know, through Carax's sort of uh, unapologetic style and also making a very personal film, while also uh, being championed by Driver's very distinctive screen presence, it's hard for me not to really be entranced by this whole thing. It's sort of like a concept art or concept album by way of like a Greek tragedy and a Shakespearean comedy. And, uh, you know, as it expands and, and unfolds, it's something that's, uh, I just feel so distinctly different than what we're getting in a cinematic market right now that seems to be favoring sort of uh, more commercial efforts. And, you know, it's definitely not flawless. I, I think there's a lot you can say about the film uh, critically that is uh, warranted, but I think that boldness and bravado that it brings is something that I find hard to ignore. And I, I feel like it's something that I just have been thinking about and really mulling about uh, throughout the year, because there's just not a lot of films like this one uh, in this year or any other. And I, I just feel really thankful that we got a film like this. Uh, you know, kind of balancing this sort of old-fashioned extravagance with sort of more contemporary uh, provocations. It just it it, it it's a very um, it's a very distinct film, and I, I think that's also elevated by some you know fairly original music by Sparks, who also got their own documentary this year, courtesy of Edgar Wright. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's a very I, I call it a dynamically dynamically mystifying film, and I uh, I just really appreciate what it is and what it was able to accomplish. And I will say if this doesn't, if so, maybe we start the opening song of the film does not get nominated for best original song at the Oscars. I I'm going to flip a table. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I'm really ultimately very favorable on the film, but as I've mentioned already uh, fairly apologetically, so, cause I can see why people don't like this film. Yeah. And I'm, I'm one of them for sure. I still, I still do not like Annette uh, as a movie. I just, that's okay. I will not, uh, I will not poke, at a movie that you clearly had such a great reaction to. I'm happy to see it because I do appreciate like, uh, you know, the, like with Titan, I appreciate the, the art itself, even if it's one that doesn't resonate with me for sure. So far, I'm liking this though. I feel like our lists are very uh, disparate from each other, but we are in sort of like a, a very artsy land right now with our movies. Uh, we'll see if that keeps going. But uh, my next one is certainly still of a piece with that. And that's Parallel Mothers. It made the list, Will, because I, I just watched I'm this film I'm happy to hear yesterday. that. I mean, I genuinely did not know where you landed on this film because, you, like you said, you just saw it and we haven't talked about yeah. it. So uh, that's very I exciting. I do imagine. Yeah. Well, okay. You got you know me and you know Pedro Almodovar is, you know, clearly one of, one of my favorite filmmakers working You say that today. as if it, he's not one of my favorite filmmakers. I'm just saying. Uh, I know. I, I love Pedro Almodovar. I'm very excited <laughs> to see this film. Yeah, he's he's such a fantastic filmmaker, just so vibrant and honest and vivid in everything that he does. Uh, the last film from him that I saw was Pain and Glory, which I thought was also excellent and was kind of cheated in some award categories that year, but that's fine. Um, but this one premiered at Venice, and 
it, it's just one of those movies where the premise is just so good. Like I, in my letterbox review, I joked that it should have had its premise to it or like the, the title of the film should have been swapped with the lost daughter, which, uh, you know, a, a decent movie. I like the lost daughter. Fine. Uh, you know, it's a I would good say movie. Good better movie. than decent. Than yeah. Fun. It's a good film. Yeah. Good film. Good film. Good film. Not my honorable mentions, but it's close. Like it's like not far. But uh, Parallel Mothers stars Penelope Cruz and uh, this this other actress, Melina Smith, who I just think is you know, mesmerizing in this. Uh, just wonderful. Everybody in this is so good. And it's about these two women who both give birth to a baby at the same time. They're roommates in the hospital. And it's sort of about their budding friendship as they are mothers of like two different generations. One of them is about to be 40. The other is very young. She's, you know, still a teenager. And it's sort of about, you know, motherhood, of course, but more specifically, it's about like losing you know, connection with your your history and where our families come from and where they're buried. And it's just such a resonant film in that respect. It's one that is just so tight. Like this script is, I think, almost perfectly edited. I, I don't think I would cut anything from it except maybe like a couple minutes here and there toward the end. But it just is paced so well. And once you get to the heart of what this movie really is about, and I will absolutely not give anything away because I've been very vague on purpose, as this movie's twists and, and turns keep unfolding, you're just like, what am I watching here? And I was absolutely gripped. I, I really thought that this thing was very, not just emotionally powerful, but just one of those movies that you watch, and you just get so into it. You're just like, I cannot wait to see what happens next. This is so great to see. This is so like, you know, energetic and full of life. And I, I just think that's so emblematic of all of Alma Duvar's films. I just think that he just has a way of making the world seem colorful and beautiful, but in a very honest way. Like it's not... It's not Cinderella, you know, it's not, it's not these movies that gloss everything and make a big, you know, to do and like everything's bright and glitter and happy and great. It's sort of like, Hey, everything is bright and we can create this, you know, wonderful, emotional, warm setting, but it's full of real actual people. And that's absolutely what you get with parallel mothers. So yeah, it jumped to the top 10 for me as soon as I saw it without any question whatsoever. Really happy that it did, you know, because it's, it's fantastic. I hope you're able to see it soon enough. Yeah, I was, uh, as you were talking, I was looking to make sure that, uh, or I was trying to see rather that it was, if it was playing near me this weekend, and unfortunately it doesn't look like it is. Um, so I don't know when that's supposed to come out locally, if it is even coming out locally, but I really hope it does come out near me because I love me a good Amo Devar film and Pain and Glory was the first time I actually got to see one of his films in theaters. So I was hoping to continue that trend with Parallel Mothers, but uh, we'll see. But I will plan. I plan on checking it out as soon as possible, to be sure. Sounds great. And uh, yeah, it's playing here in the Bay Area. So if we have any listeners in the San Francisco area, it's playing at a few theaters out here. Hopefully that means it'll be coming to Pittsburgh soon enough. All right. It's time. Our number seven films. We're, we're, into the, we're at Lucky Seven. Will Ashen, what is your number seven film of the year? Yeah, so my number seven pick is a film that uh, at one point was teetering for the number one spot, and it's a film I do really do. I like it a lot, but I think some of the other films I've seen throughout the year have uh, um, overshadowed it. But that's not to say anything negative about this film, but rather just how much I like those films. But in any case, my number seven pick is Bergman Island. Um, so I, you know, as the title of the show might suggest, I like to pride myself in being something of a cinema cinemaphile. Uh, but unfortunately I'm not super familiar with Ingmar it's either, Berg. it's either cinephile or cinemaholic. Well, you got to pick one. Oh, yeah. I was trying to combine the two cinephile. Uh, <laughs> I'm, right, just, I'm just so used to saying cinemaholics. I think cause cinemaholics is a word that, uh, people get tripped up on. So I, I feel like I had to make sure I pronounced it right. But in the process I tripped up on cinephile. So 
uh, you know, you win some, you lose some, I guess. But uh, in any case, uh, I, even though I do pride myself on being a cinephile, I, I will admittedly admit that uh, I don't have much familiarity with Igmar Bergman's work. I mean, I've, I know the films, but I haven't seen as many as I would like to. And I can't say there's a good reason why. But I would say, even though I'm still making my way through his filmography, I didn't have any problem uh, appreciating uh, what Mia hansen Louf does with her film Bergman Island, which is, I think, both a cinematic love letter to not only his films, but uh, the art of cinema in general, and also just a very just profoundly gratifying character study that explores just the very idea of storytelling and how our past and presence will always be intertwined with our work, even when that becomes ultimately the past. Um, I think uh, get, combining the performances from Vicky Kripes and Tim Roth and Maya Wachowski and uh, Anders Danielson Lai, who uh, we'll be mentioning, or I'll be mentioning at least uh, later on this list. Uh, I, I think there is something so tender and resoundingly exploitative about this movie and how it explores uh, the subjectivity of how we find love and also how that kind of fuses into our general desire to find creative inspiration, even when it ultimately sort of reveals some insecurities that we have in the process. And I think the way it tangles these sort of messy feelings in a very clean and involving package is something that I think is quite envious because it's so delicate, but it ultimately becomes so devastating at the same time. I think it's a film that's very seductive, it's very sensual, but it's also very enchanting and unabashedly sentimental in its approach. And I, I think it does all those things without feeling too self-satisfying or self-serving. Uh, and even though it, it has so many opportunities to feel fairly indulgent, and certainly in terms of like how it parallels the story and parallels Bergman, uh, and certainly parallels Bergman in a sense of uh, replicating some scenes from Scenes from Marriage, I feel like this movie is at its most complete when it has those influences, but it's balanced with uh, the dexterity that Hansen Louvre has in forming this fairly fully realized story that's, as I mentioned, very gentle in its reflection, but also very acutely realized in terms of what it means to kind of fall in love and allowing yourself to fall in love with someone and allow that to involve you to make very meaningful and personal art and just the very nature of art itself. I, I think it's a very rich film and it's something that uh, even though I don't think it's quite as impactful enough to be in my top five, it's something that I just find to be so swelling and so tender and just so just gratifying to watch from as a film fan and just someone who just loves seeing films that just feel like someone just ripped their heart out and put it on the screen and you know i i would say the uh meal drop here for abba's the winner takes it all might be my favorite needle drop of the year but it's kind of tough to say because there are actually quite a few needle drops that are really really good and well used this year so uh all that to say i really like this film a lot um i can see why some people might want to dismiss it but it's one that really stuck with me and i uh just have a lot of soft warm bubbly feelings for it so that is bergman island my number seven pick all right, that's that's the first of your picks that I think I really am like vibing with, <laughs> uh, mainly because I haven't seen some kind of heaven. I don't know if I would like that as much, but yeah, I I just watched Bergman Islander, finished it the other day, and yeah, I have to agree with you. This this movie's tremendous. It's on my top ten, but it's absolutely close to it. Uh, I think Bergman Island's just wonderful. Uh, that needle drop you mentioned, I think that entire scene, that whole sequence is one of my favorite scenes of the whole year. I, I, it made the oh, movie it, for me. Like yeah, up until that up point, for me, yeah, I, I definitely was sort of like, I like this. Do I love it? And then that scene happens. I'm like, yes, this is, this is great. 
Like mm-hmm. I just, this is what I came for. And yeah, everything you mentioned and more in total agreement. I just, I love what this is saying about storytelling. It's really, really good stuff. And I love seeing Vicky creeps in a good movie. I know that you also liked old, but I was kind of like, you know, not, sure. as, not as high. Yeah, I mean, that. as much as I liked old, I think this is her performance of the year. I'll say that. Sure. And, and I have to say, as somebody who, you know, I'm not the, I'd say Ingmar Bergman is one of my blind spots, you know, one of the great directors. I have not seen enough of his films. And this was a wonderful, you know, stroke of inspiration of like getting into some of his work and, and finally correcting that would be great uh, yeah. to round me out as a, as a film watcher. So hopefully Absolutely. I can do that in response. Yeah. I just, I bring that up because I, when I talk about this film with people, they're like, Oh, I'm actually not that super well-versed with Bergman. I'm like, I have to be like, I'm not either, but I still really like this movie. And I don't think that's a crutch. Like, I don't think that's going to prevent anyone from enjoying this film. So I just put that caveat only in the sense that I don't think you need to be a Bergman expert to like, love this film or anything like that. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'll say my number seven film then. And this one, you know, it's tough because for most of the year, I was like, I think this is my favorite animated film of the year. I think there's one other film that gets above it, but I think for reasons I'll have to get to when I talk about that movie. But for now, I'll say number seven for me is Luca, the Pixar summer film. I think for me, the best film of the whole summer, except for one other. Actually, no, that's not true. Two other films <laughs> that technically came out in the summer. But uh, I, at least in the, like the more traditional sense, when I think of like summer movies, like those other two films I'll talk about, they technically came out in the summer, but they aren't like summer movies to me. They could have come out anytime. This movie I had to have watched, you know, like in the middle of summer when it was hot outside and I got transported to Italy in this wonderful animated film that I wish I could have seen it in theaters, but I couldn't. I, I could talk to you for hours about Pixar and theaters and, and all that drama, but we'll we'll have to set that aside for now. I mean, this movie's incredible. It, it's just what Enrico Casarosa was able to do, taking like a childhood memory and adding like a Miyazaki twist and like calling out Miyazaki and and bringing us to this place and like merging this sort of like fable of like sea monsters coming on dry land and looking like humans and kind of in this like really impressive like Federico Fellini sort of environment that's not just whimsical, but you know, it, it's alive. Like you watch this movie and it's like you feel like you're there. It's one of the few films, especially animated, where I felt just absolutely transported. I I think that if there's something that 2021 was not amazing at by and large, it was escapism. Like I look at my favorite films of the year and I didn't really escape in these movies for the most part, a few here and there, but not at least in a fantastical way. If I did escape, it was in a more grounded sort of like dreamlike way, but very much in this kind of world. But Luke, I think was one of the few that like, it wasn't like a homework movie. Not that any of these are homework movies, but sometimes they can come across like they are. They can be a little bit, you know, more to chew on. Luca was just like a pure entertainment, but with just like a, a just a beauty to it that I could not deny that I couldn't get enough of. I've, I've seen it many times at this point. It's, it's a comfort food kind of watch for me right now. And certainly one of the better Pixar films of recent years. I'd say I'd probably put this one above Soul. I'd, I'd put this one above Onward. It just, it really is rewarding. The more I watch it, the more I just get so much out of the music, the artistry. This doesn't look like a lot of other Pixar movies, which I really appreciate. It's really breaking away from some of those formulas. Also, I just, I really commend the script. I think the script is really good. It's not uh, too long. It's not too short. It's just like, it gets you right into this world and out in a very rich, you know, fascinating, you know, pace. Like I, I just, I really thought this one worked across the board. So yeah, Luca, one of my favorites of the year for sure. 
Nice. Yeah, I was really close to putting this in my honorable mentions. It didn't quite make the cut, but I can certainly see why you felt very strongly about it. I I really appreciate it. And like you said, I mean, it's the type of film that it's easy to kind of get basked into it. And then even when you think back on it, just like, man, that really just that movie didn't get its due. I feel like people kind of dismissed it just because it didn't really get the theatrical release and stuff. But it's a good film. I definitely think people should check it out for sure. I think people also dismissed it because they were just like, it's too simple. And I actually think it was also really good, you know, coming out allegory that you could read oh, yeah, into absolutely. it. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, that I think some people just didn't, I don't know if they believed that that was the case or I don't know. There's, I don't want to relitigate, I mean, but I, yeah. People made jokes about it, but I mean, I think, yeah. you know, that's kind of cheap. Well, a lot of the jokes were just like, it's call me by your name. And right. it's like, well, no, I mean, it's, like, it's yeah. very different. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. okay. Our number six films. We're almost halfway through. But uh, yeah, Will, your number six film of the year. We're getting to we're getting close to the midway point. Uh, yeah, I mean, this one, I I would have been shocked if this one didn't make the list. And I think you're going to know what it is pretty quick. Uh, it's uh, a film that uh, it stars someone who has been a favorite of mine for quite a while and someone who has been uh involved with several films that have been on my top 10 list in other years. That film is pig. And that star is Nicholas Cage. Will, that's uh, my number six. Is it also your number six? It's, it's also my number six. Oh, wow. All right. I, have have <laughs> hey, we there ever we really, go. uh, core line? I don't, this I don't think so. Uh, if we have, it was a while ago. Uh, and I, I gotta say pig, the number one film over at the young yeah. It was the, it, by far, uh, so how do you want to do this? Do you just want to kind of go back yeah. and forth or how do we, how we do it? This? Yeah. All right. Yeah. You like pig? Well, what do you like so much about it? Well, I mean, so as I mentioned, I think the public assessment of Nicolas Cage has kind of gone back and forth a lot. I think people, they, they see the meme of him or like just the, the, the easy sources of derision. Cause he can be very kind of theatrical and over the top. And a lot of films that don't really service his talents or his enthusiasm for the craft that well. And, uh, I, I can understand why people are quick to dismiss him, but for me, there's always something very compelling about him. I, I don't think he really fully ever half-asses a film, even when it sometimes looks like he does. I think he's always trying to bring something unique and thoughtful to his performances and uh, I think it's just a matter of whether or not a filmmaker can really bring the best out of film that determines whether he gives a great performance or a mediocre one. And when it comes to uh, Michael Saranowski's debut here, I think it results in what I think is probably one of Nick Cage's very best performances. It's, uh, Michael Sarnowski. Oh, Sarnowski. I apologize. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very soulful and almost kind of confoundingly beautiful film because i think when people see the trailer or they see the synopsis for the film they sort of think like it's the cage's version of john wick and i guess in a broad sense it sort of is but it's not like an action thriller it's not like a like you know like a vengeance film in the traditional sense like he's not you know like pumping people full of lead and like you know going around town you know beating people up uh, if anything people beat him up but i don't want to give away too much about the film uh it's a film that i think it, it proves to be at least for me a far more sort of subdued yearning and intellectually stimulating film than i guess i initially thought and you know it has a very as we mentioned sort of simple premise where it follows a sort of uh, socially distanced truffle hunter who goes on a quest to reclaim his stolen swine uh but i, <laughs> I like I, the way I, you put that <laughs> yeah but um i think 
what I find so meaningful about the film, especially as a Nick Cage fan, is how it ultimately sort of mirrors the uh, career and the public life of Nicolas Cage. Because so many people are going to be like, why does Nicolas Cage go so out for this? Why is he like, you know, dress up like the devil to play Ghost Rider in Ghost Rider 2 or whatever? Like, why does he do all these sort of outlandish things for his art? Like, what is it so important to do this for this? And I feel like the film itself is not only commenting on Nicolas Cage's career, uh, which has certainly been filled with its fair shares of ups and downs, but just searching for what it means to be an artist and how there's this sort of thirsty desire to really just like make a meal out of everything. In this case, quite literally, obviously, because the art of choice is the culinary arts. Um, but uh, as far as like uh, Nicolas Cage's performance in this film, it, it's, I guess, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more subdued, as I mentioned, than some of his other works. But it has that intensity that I think is so impossible to ignore with Nicolas Cage. Like you just see in his eyes this sort of looming intensity, but at the same time, it's used this sort of grieving, uh, melancholic way that it, it has, like I said before, this sort of lovely, uh, impactful vibe where it's it's obviously very gorgeously shot and very rich in how it makes so much out of its uh, very sort of simplistic presence premise. But the, the beauty of the film, I think ultimately comes from the minuteness of it and how it really searches for like these very little things in life that feel so seemingly, uh, you know, uh, meaningless to some other people, but are ultimately so precious to some, like in this case, Nicolas Cage's character. And even if no one else really understands it or rather even wants to understand it, it means something to somebody. And if it's lost, there is something that is really hard to get over and reconcile with that. And so I, I really like Pig as just that celebration, as I said, of the artistic pursuit. Um, and even more than that, I really like it as a testament to Nicolas Cage's uh, long-standing, decades-long pursuit to making the most out of his craft and finding this lyricism even in the sort of like kind of generic banal films, which is certainly not the case for this film. Uh, it's a very, like I said, bold and lovely film. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a type of film where the ripple effects of it, I, it doesn't really seep in until you think about it for a long time. And I, I think this is really going to withstand the time as one of Nicolas Cage's most, uh, most meaningful films. And I really, really like it a lot. So I'll let you say your piece about the film now. Well, you went pretty long, so I don't think I can say much else. But I, I, I mean, you captured a lot of it. I, I think if there's one thing I want to harp on here, it's that I mean, what this movie does so well, and I think that is just so subversive to me, is like it. I think it advances the its genre, or it, it advances. I think you know what movies can be about. It it does so much work, and, and impressively considering it's Sarnowski's de debut as a filmmaker. I just think it does so much to sort of say like we we can have films that feature you know that sort of like turn the revenge trope on its head this is the same year we got movies like nobody you know with bob odenkirk which you know those are fun movies and i don't want to like bring those down or anything yeah, but i had fun with nobody yeah yeah but what i like about movies like this is that they're just so promising you know you watch a movie like this and you're like we can get different kinds of things like you know we can get a variety where we can actually like subvert that trope like can kind of deconstruct why is it that revenge films are so satisfying to us this is such a self-aware right. movie in that respect where it knows what we're expecting it to be and then it turns all of that around on us and it investigates the the, the watcher Right. It's mm -hmm. it's a two way conversation. I think this movie is dabbling in because it's clearly like a dialogue between, you know, not just Nicolas Cage, but also Alex Wolf and right. also Adam Arkin to an extent. And I, I have to just highlight, I think that that scene in the restaurant, oh, yeah. I didn't see it coming. 
right? I'm watching this this scene and like, yeah, if I had to pick a scene of the year, this could be the one. Like it, it's up there. Right. And it's just, yeah, it's it's moving, it's lasting, it's yeah. it's just a it's just a true gem of right. a film. And I think you're right. I think it will go down as one of his more meaningful films, right? Yeah. I, I think that it it should be in that right. respect. So yeah, I'm I'm all in for picks. Some pick. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, not to get hyperbolic, but it kind of feels like you're going into like the McDonald's drive-thru just getting a Big Mac. It's just like, oh, you know, I just need something to tie me over. And you suddenly get like a four-course meal. And you're like, wait, I'm sorry, is there a steak? And then your dad comes out. He's just like, I just wanted to say I'm proud of you. And it's like, what is, <laughs> what is happening? I just thought I was going to get a Nicolas Cage this, movie. This about, is the best it, McDonald's ever. Right. <laughs> I feel like that's like the uh, experience of watching this film. You expect something kind of yeah. tacky and simple, but it, it becomes a very unexpectedly rich and poignant film and uh i i really hope more people check it out it's quite a good film same here and another neon film so there you go there and uh yeah like i said neon and a24 had great years all right so since since i didn't have too much to say then i can start with this next one kind of get you off the hook a little bit but uh yeah my number uh we're at number five number five already and I'm excited to talk about this one because it's another it's another award season movie, one that I saw a little bit later at the end of December, but I'm so glad that I did. So I was able to include it here because I think it's fantastic. And that is The Worst Person in the World. This is the new film from Joaquin Trier. And it's hard for me even to describe this movie in a way that I am happy with because the more I try to describe it, the more I'm just like, well, yeah, okay, but that doesn't do it justice. I'll, I'll do my best though. So this, this is a Norwegian film and it's kind of like a dark romantic comedy, but it's also kind of like a, more like a dark romantic dramedy actually. And I think that it's, it's one of those movies where you're watching it and it does take some time to, for it to fully settle into what it is because you start and you know it starts with narration it starts with this sort of young woman who's clearly going through a lot of change and we watch her sort of go through uh, a series of different relationships and we see how they change her and how they shape her like that that sounds kind of basic right but this movie is all about the the how not the what like you're watching how she responds to certain things you're watching her a range of emotion and expression in any given situation i think that She's not going to. So this actress, <laughs> I I have to say, she's not going to win Best Picture. I doubt she'll be nominated, unfortunately. But Renate Rensiv, you mean, uh, I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly. You but, mean Best Actress? Um, yes, Best Actress. Yeah, excuse yeah. me. It would be quite a quite an achievement if she won Best Picture. But I mean, <laughs> I think it's well deserved, to be honest. I mean. <laughs> she she has great pictures in this, but no, um, you know, her winning Best Actress, I think I would give it to her in, in a landslide. Right. Because I, I just think that it's to me, I think it's one of the best performances, male or female, because it, what she's doing here, she's taking a, a character and this is another subversive film. I think if there is a theme between all the films on my list, it's subversion. It's sort of taking things we already know in movies and just turning them around and making something unique out of them. And in this case, you're taking the kind of like female character that I think a lot of people would be like, that character is unlikable. This character is doing things that I think are despicable or, oh, I wouldn't do things that way. Or like, oh, I hate, I don't like it when women do this or whatever. Like it can come off as like anti-woman or something like that. Some of the criticism and this movie is sort of like, here is a person, here's a human being and kind of similar, I guess, like what I was talking about with, you know, like pig and killing of two lovers are two films that I think are, are talking a lot about like the male ego, the male sort of like, like the masculinity, the expectations that are put on men that men put on themselves. And this movie I think is about like a woman 
woman sort of like radiating herself out to other people and just like gravitating toward the, the ones who respond to her in a way that is authentic and accepting. And it doesn't gloss over her flaws. It doesn't treat her like any sort of like hyper competent, has all the right answers. It's not pandering. I know you didn't see the 355, but that's, that is a movie that I think just does not understand what is empowering about, you know, feeling like not just comfortable in your gender or the gender that you, you know, you certainly identify with, but like really just having such a, a being synced with like your place in the world and what that means in every respect. And so I think that it's a movie that just, uh, it's so good. It, it's, it's long. And I love how it's broken though by chapters, because I, I certainly was able to like get through it feeling like I was reading a really great book, but in movie format just happened to be a movie. And I consider that a pretty, you know, great thing. There are fantastic scenes in this, you know, I've already talked about a certain scene in this that is just, uh, again, another highlight of the year for me, like where the time kind of slows down, but there's another whole sequence involving like, you know, two people who kind of just flirt for an entire night that just like sticks in my brain, like the, the chemistry, the, the, but also the tension, also the sort of like, will they, won't they, could they, should they, like all that stuff, I think is just so well done, so brilliantly directed and written. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I know it premiered at Cannes and it's, uh, I think not, I think it was available in New York and LA, but it's not playing everywhere yet. Uh, but yeah, as yeah. soon as it hits like limited release, I think people should hopefully seek it out. That'd oh, be absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but it is going to be on my list uh, a little bit higher. So I will reserve uh, some of my thoughts on the film until that point. But I certainly have a lot of fond affectionate feelings for the film, as I've mentioned in the past. And I'm very excited to hear that you had similarly fond feelings for the film as well. Wonderful to hear. I'm glad it's not also your number five. That would have been weird if it, we it, had the same five and six. <laughs> you say that, but it got pretty like my four through six picks are pretty interchangeable. Like I interesting kind of okay. went back and forth on like what you go where. Uh, so there is a timeline where we had the same five yeah. and the same six, but that didn't quite happen this time. All right. Well, let's stick to this timeline then, I guess. What's sure. your number five of the year? Well, uh, my number five pick is a film that I wasn't sure if it would be on your list, but I know you uh, like it a lot as well. So this one isn't going to be divisive. It is Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. Uh, so as I think I've vocalized throughout this episode and other episodes of Cinemaholics, I feel like we're kind of in something of a drought period cinematically. It's becoming apparent now that the interest of filmmakers is uh, being shooed away in the interest of doing IP and sort of things that I feel like are more in the interest of appealing shareholders and looking out for the interests of the filmmakers. And, you know, that's not to say that great work doesn't come out of that, but I feel like it's becoming more and more rare that we see a film from a bona fide filmmaker, someone who has such a distinct style, someone who has such distinct cinematic presence in a way that is pretty unmistakably their own. And I think that's certainly the case for Wes Anderson, as he's proven throughout, I think, nine or ten films at this point. I, I forget exactly what number this is for the French Dispatch. But I will say, uh, when the film came out, and maybe this had to do with the delayed release, or maybe this had to do with people having kind of concrete opinions, I guess, at this point about how they feel about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker. But I feel like people were kind of dismissing this one rather unfairly as a sort of lesser effort or maybe a more slight effort from Wes Anderson. Uh, but I just didn't really can, quite can I cut in the sure. criticism that bugs me the most. And it's, it's not something that I even disagree with that much is like people are just going to saying it in a condescending way. It's the most Wes Anderson movie. Right. It's like, OK, I get why you're saying that. But I do think that it like 
it just comes off as dismissive to me. It comes mm-hmm. off like condescending in a weird way. But right. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree because I just feel like, you know, like I see people are like, oh, he's doing his twee thing again or like, oh, you know, like he's like, you know, like playing it up to a certain style. It's so unoriginal at this point. For one, it's just like, well, what did you expect? He's Wes Anderson. Like if you why did you watch the movie? If that's if you didn't like this, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, what do you expect? Uh, and the other thing is just like, well, why are we dismissing this? Because for me, I, I just found this film to be just so delightful. Like it's. It's a type of film that I just, throughout the whole thing, I just had this big smile on my face. It was obviously covered by a mask, but uh, I was just, you know, delighted throughout this whole thing because it seems like Anderson at this point is becoming even more in tune with his cinematic language, his sense of style, and just his sense of self as a filmmaker at this point. And obviously, you know, like this hyper stylized style, as we mentioned, is getting very uh, criticized by certain people for being, you know, either slight or twee or that he's somewhat, I guess, losing the humanity that was uh, so core to his earlier films like Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. But while I can understand on the surface why people feel that way, I feel like this anthology story does have a lot of that humanity it just it's kind of tuckered in in unsuspecting ways uh you know obviously the story of it follows this sort of like dying new yorker-esque magazine that's putting out its last issue and we're seeing in these vignettes all these different stories uh being told in a very cinematic way throughout somewhat scattered uh narrative and 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 it could kind of feel like sort of similar to um the coen brothers ballad of buster scruggs it kind of feels a little bit like a grab bag of all the different ticks and me- mechanics that we get from Wes Anderson films. Uh, but I think at the core of this film is, like I said, like a love letter just to the creative spirit, sort of similar to Bergman Island in that respect, as well as the folks who just foster and harvest that individualistic freedom, even sometimes in the case of this film against corporate interest. Uh, and so you, you just see a film like this that so openly celebrates just the foundations of having creative endurance. It's not especially novel film, but it just feels so assuring, especially with someone like Wes Anderson, who's becoming more confident, I think, as a filmmaker as it goes as he goes along. And, but even like on the surface level, I think it's just it's easy to appreciate this film as a delightful little like ode to writers and, you know, like the the people that we love to read and the editors who just let them do their thing or, you know restrain them in, I guess, loving but critical ways. I, I think that's something obviously is, you know, writers and editors ourselves, that's easy to appreciate. Uh, but I think what I find so impactful about the film, especially as I mentioned in this sort of increasingly dire time for movies, is just how well it's able to be assuring and devastating about just what it means to create art and be a writer or an, uh, an artist, like I said, in, in sincere and moving ways. And, you know, it's, it's a film that I can understand why people people are criticizing as being slight or, you know, derivative for Wes Anderson. But I think the more you unpack this film, the more you realize it, it carries that sort of melancholy charm that uh, is really thoughtful and sincere in all of Wes Anderson's films. And I don't think this film is any exception at all. So uh, I'm pretty happy to put this one at number five. I think it's a really outstanding film and yet another triumph from Wes Anderson. We're, we're agreeing a lot lately, which is suspicious. It makes me think that we're, we're gearing up for a big old conflict because, oh my gosh, I agree with so much of that. I, I think that, yeah, French Dispatch, it's not my top 10, but it's so close. Like, it's it's literally a movie or two away. And for all the reasons you mentioned and more, I think, like, uh, picking things out of this movie, for sure, I think the the entire sequence of Benicio Del Toro and Lea Sedu is just, what a, it's just like a beautiful short film on its own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's just, 
we're just spoiled to have so many other things wrapped around with it. You know, I, I sure. appreciate it. So I like Francis McDormand's whole section in this with Timmy, Timothy Chalamet, mm-hmm. you know, great needle drops in general, really good climax. I, yeah. Sure. Everything in here is just like, just so like, like you said, it's just like, I felt gratified at the, at the movie theater. I felt like I was experiencing something really worthwhile. And mm-hmm. I can't say that I get that a lot. Uh, with movies like this these days and that's why i'm kind of like like i said before it's like calling this the most wes anderson film you can say that about every wes anderson film since like Mm -hmm. life aquatic or royal tenenbaum you know like you can like he he goes all out with all of his movies and i i think that's something to be applauded and i still think that they're all so unique right you know they have some of these same signature styles you can't say that this movie is the same thing as like moonrise kingdom or grand budapest hotel it's just it absolutely, like you said, it's its own beautiful little anthology, you know, wrapped up in a perfect little string for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would push back is just say that I, as much as I like the Benicio Del Toro section, I think the one that really makes it for me is the Jeffrey Wright one. Um, it, I think it is really fantastic. That's, yeah. that's the one I think pushes from being a really fun movie to being a pretty great one for me, at least my opinion. So, uh, I yeah, I, but otherwise, I definitely agree with everything you said there. I'm glad that we had to disagree on something. I was getting, like I said before, I was getting nervous. Yeah. But okay, so let's get into our number fours. We're now in the top four films of our list. We're getting close to the finish line, but okay. My number four film is one that I saw at Sundance, and I remember it was one that you were kind of like unsure if I would like. I remember you were kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know, John. But that is my favorite animated film of the year, and that's CryptoZoo. I just love CryptoZoo. The more I think about it, the more I reflect on it, the more I like, I like rewatch clips on YouTube. I love the animation style in this. It's so unique. It's so different. It's like watching like an eighties metal band album cover, but for an entire movie Uh, and without the metal music, you know, it's, it kind of, it marches to the beat of its own drum to borrow a line from Vivo, but yeah, this is Dash Shaw's film that he wrote and directed. It's it's a miracle that this exists, that he was able to make this, that he was able, he's a cartoonist, I believe, and he he got a good cast for this, Lake Bell, Michael Cera, and uh, Zoe Kazan, and so many others. Like, I just think that this movie, it's such a wonderful premise, you know, like the world has these like creatures called cryptids, I promise has nothing to do with cryptocurrency, which is why I was a little bit nervous about watching it. But it, it really is just sort of about like weird but beautiful creatures just trying to coexist in a world that rejects them. It's about, you know, the perils of trying to segregate people away from each other. Ultimately, it's a film about how togetherness and integration and and being around people, even though you think you have all the differences in the world, is how we come to find love and peace and acceptance. It's just such a a truly killer movie. I know that it's not everybody's favorite. It it doesn't have the best, you know, critical ratings. I, I don't think it's a movie that everybody agrees with me on for sure but when i think of the most visually unique and one of the most like emotionally like striking and precise movies of the year it absolutely is crypto zoo i've talked a lot about movies that i think advance the medium this one does that for me in terms of animation i love seeing more animated films you know really being up for adults and unapologetically i'm really really appreciative of that there are very few of those uh in the u.s you know and i think that it's something the u.s is missing out on i think we are hitting a wave where we're starting to see more things come out but more in a tv world for animation that is you know not not just comedy 
comedies, but like dramas and and stuff that's really deep and you know interesting. Just some stuff that you know wouldn't have existed 10, 15 years ago coming out today. And I think this is a promising one for the years to come. I love the creatures in this too. The creatures are so fun. Oh, uh, yes. Shout out to Pliny, Pliny uh, this of course. year's best actor. Yeah. Uh, or supporting, I guess. One of the best say, characters. But... Uh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, I know. I know you like this one too. Not as much as me, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I know it's not your. We're, we didn't uh, line up this time, but um, I do think this is kind of similar for me to French Dispatch in that I don't. I, I can kind of understand why people are critical of the film, but it's another film where I, I feel like people kind of dismiss it as being twee or like too Sundancey in a way that I just don't really understand like I can, I can get like not being impressed by it or not really like being taken by like the kind of weird uh, quirks that it has but like you said i think the commentary here you know like on just like kind of like this flawed eco eco culture for like this like liberal safe haven and like this like balance between individualism and idealism is is really creative and inspired and as you mentioned there's like this quality to it where it's like you kind of like found dash shaw's like notebook hiding under his desk and you open it up and you're like what is this? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. plenty. It's like, what is a plenty? And it's just like, you know, like I, I, I think that is so inspiring to see. And uh, yeah, I, even if I don't mirror the same level of enthusiasm that you have for the film, I'm so grateful to have a film like this. And it was definitely uh, in my top ten for sure when I uh, saw it at Sundance uh, of, of the films I saw at Sundance. And so back in January a year weird. ago, no, I mean other other films I saw at Sundance. Yeah, <laughs> oh, but, um, I thought you were saying like, oh yeah, like twelve months ago no, no, when no, I had no, seen I meant, three movies, I, it was in my top ten. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't uh, too clear. I met of the films I saw <laughs> at funny, Sundance. Though. It was in my top 10. But gotcha, uh, gotcha. yeah, I, I enjoy a lot. I definitely appreciate it a lot. And uh, even if I don't have the same enthusiasm that you have for this film, it, it does gratify me to to see it on your list and t- seeing someone champion as much as you do. All right. What about your number four, Will Ashton? Let's hear it. Yeah. So this one is a film that we have already mentioned and you've already gone at length to discuss. So I'll try to be a little tidy in my thoughts. Uh, It is the worst person in the world, which is, uh, yeah, a film that uh, I have been reflecting on quite a bit this year. Uh, It's kind of hard not to because we're trapped indoors more increasingly uh, because of the pandemic. And because of that, I find myself very uncertain about the future and what's going to happen. And I have certainly felt a lot of anxiety about getting older, especially as I age out of my 20s. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting close. And uh, I guess I'm trying to sort of make peace with my own sort of personal messiness and trying to get my own shit together at this point. And uh, we've had a few films this year, I guess, thankfully and unthankfully, that have uh, tackled these things. I know another example was Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, which a lot of people felt quite affectionately for. And I can understand why. But for me, uh, the best of these type of films was, as we mentioned, The Worst Person in the World, which is the third installment, uh, as we mentioned, in Jockham's tri- Is it Jockham? Tears or uh, Joaquin Trier? Joaquin oh, Trier, Joaquin? I think is how you say it. Is it Joaquin? I thought oh. so. Oh, okay. Well, Joaquin, Joaquin. I don't know Joaquin. if I'm pronouncing that right. It's J O A C H I M. Sorry about that. Uh, Joaquin Tears, uh, the third film in his unofficial Oslo trilogy, which, um, if you haven't had a chance to see Oslo August 31st, I definitely would recommend that one very much, as well as Reprise, the first film in that trilogy. But, uh, you know, kind of mirroring what you said before, I think this is probably. The best and certainly most emotionally fulfilling installment in that in this little trilogy, and I think that primarily comes not only from the inventiveness of the filmmaking and how elaborate it is, but also just from this incredible lead performance from Renate Rez- Rezeev. 
I, I don't ever quite know how to pronounce it, but if Again, I had to it's, pick, it's yeah. Norwegian, so it's, right. you know, I, I, I apologize it to you. It's tough. For it's us. not a native tongue for me. It, it, much surprise, I'm sure. Uh, but as you've mentioned, uh, I think this might be my favorite performance of the year. I, I am already prematurely bummed that she's probably not going to get nominated for Best Actress, and someone like Nicole Kidman and being Ricardo's is, but whatever. Anyway, uh, Worst Person in the World, as you mentioned, it's very deliberately kind of novelistic in its approach, and uh, it mirrors sort of the scattered reflections of its character who, you know, the title is very ironic, obviously, but she makes a lot of bad decisions and she's not always perfect, but you know, she has this sort of like emotional catharsis that feels very earned and lived in. And I feel like there's so many, like I said, uniquely memorable moments and so many wonderfully idiosyncratic moments as well that just feel very lived in and impactful in a way that few films like this ever really do. And it really wallops into this very mature and beautiful film that is, you know, funny and it's engaging and it's relatable and it's sad and it's weird. And it's, I, I think, ultimately very gratifying uh, you know, it, it, it kind of mirrors the highs and lows of this journey that this character feels. And, you know, it, it feels like you're living in her shoes for that reason. And you ultimately make yeah, she makes peace with the decisions you or she makes throughout the film. You in your own personal life, at least you're like me, you can also kind of learn to kind of make peace with your own sort of messiness. So in that reason and more, I found it to be a very enriching and emboldening film. And uh, I'm very grateful for the time I had with it. I'm very grateful for a time I've had reflecting on it. And uh, I'm maybe less grateful for how much it reflects upon me as a person. But all the same, I'm just very glad that this movie exists. and We got to see it in time to put our own personal best of year list. Awesome. I I don't want to give anything away, but I am wondering if we're going to have more overlap than we did last year, uh, which would be the most overlap I think ever between us. Cause last year we had two films overlap. That was, um, never rarely, sometimes always. And, uh, she dies tomorrow, two great films, but this year we already have two and we still have three films to go. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is it going to happen this year? Are we going to beat the record that we, we did last? I think, I think last year that was the record was two before that. I think we'd only had one uncommon usually. So that just tells you when you come to cinema, like you're getting a range, but um, maybe not this year <laughs> as much. But okay, our number three films of the year. I am so excited to talk about this film. It's one that it was one of my most anticipated films of 2020. It was, of course, delayed a whole year. We finally got it this past summer. This, I think, was the best summer film. Like, if I'm being literal, technically Pig came out in the summer too. And, you know, Luca is more of like a summer movie. But this is the film that was my favorite that came out in the summer that at least I saw in the summer. And that is The Green Knight, which, uh, like I mentioned before, A24 had a good year, uh, at least for me. You know, I think uh, this is uh, one of the shining examples of that. This is Dev Patel just being utilized as an actor in ways that I'm just so like, thank you. Thank you for understanding Dev Patel's talent, David Lowry. And I, and I really am a big fan of David Lowry at this point, too. I really enjoyed, for example, A Ghost Story and Pete's Dragon and Ain't Them Body Saints. I haven't seen Old Man in the Gun. Uh, one of these days I'll get to that so I can be a, a David Lowry completionist. But this movie, you know, which you know, retells the Green Knight story and, you know, it's about Sir Gawain and it's it's kind of just like this hyper surreal kind of metaphorical like dark pitch black fable where we're but even though it's a fable and even though there are so many scenes in this that are just like impossible to believe what you're watching it's all still grounded in a very human story about a person that i think too many of us are going to watch the film and be like 
oh, I relate to that person and be upset about that fact. But at the same time, maybe there can be some catharsis to have from watching a movie like this and recognizing, you know, the limits of our morality and the limits of what we can do as human beings and how we can, you know, kind of live our lives sort of like, you know, obviously struggling to the end to try to change our fates and to try to change our destinies, but just having an acceptance that we can't fix every problem, we can't solve every issue, we can't succeed every single quest, you know, especially the ones that are ill-fated as they are. But I think it's all about the journey. And I think that's what this movie ultimately is. It's about how the journey defines us more than anything else, even what we're journeying to achieve. It's a film about glory. It's a film about, you know, the greed and the lust for glory being the ultimate downfall of people and what leads to some of those tragic events that, you know, kind of doom us, you know, and in terms of our lives, but through what I think is just like beautiful, artful, striking world that we exist in this like King Arthur sort of like, what if King Arthur was just in like The Witcher, basically, if I had to do like one kind of comparison point, uh, this this is sort of like a weird balance between like The Witcher and something like Game of Thrones, where it's not as if magic is like around every corner, but it's certainly there, a persistent thing in this world. And to the point where you, things are happening that are just so different, so esoteric, that it's just like, what am I seeing here? And as I mentioned, Dev Patel's performance in here is so good, but uh, Alicia Vikander, who I think is just being viciously overlooked for her performance here, she gets she gets a chance to to really bring Dev Patel's performance to fruition, if you uh, <clears throat> catch my drift. Uh, also, Joel Edgerton shows up in this movie at one point and is just like blasting us away with just this incredible performance. Sean Harris comes out of nowhere in this. I, I just think across the board, Ralph Innocent and Barry Kagan, like people just come into this movie, yeah. they're in it for a minute and they little, just leave all the impression. Little Barry being a little stinker in this movie. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as he does, as he know, as, you know, it wasn't as uh, powerful in Eternals, but he made it count here. And I, yeah, I, I absolutely adore this movie. It is a cinematic experience unlike any other. I'm surprised it's not my number one film of the year. It really, it probably would have been if, uh, if not for the other two films on this list coming out when they did, because yeah, I, I think this movie is absolutely incredible. So The Green Knight. And I, I forget exactly where you stand on this movie, but uh, I assume that I like it uh, a good bit more than you do. Yeah, I mean, it's a film. I appreciate it. I do like it. I just emotionally didn't get as much out of it as you and some other folks did. But to the film's credit and to David Lowry's credit, as I felt similarly to A Ghost Story and uh, Peace Dragon, two other films you mentioned, uh, the more I think about it, the more I think I respect what it pulled off. And obviously, as you mentioned, it's a gorgeous looking film. Uh, I mean, cinematography wise, it's it's probably one of the best looking films of the year. I'm definitely glad I saw this in theaters uh, when I did. But yeah, I, it didn't hit me as hard as you did. I'm not quite as uh, big into the fantasy scene, so that might be part of it. But uh, yeah, it's a good film. I can definitely see why it's on your list and why it's on a lot of other people's lists as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the fantasy thing. Yeah, the dark fantasy aspect, because I love fantasy and fantasy books. So yeah, I'm sure that that's pretty indicative of like what I get out of it. And I, I'll say one more thing. I think this is the film that is my tragedy of Macbeth. I'll put it that way. But uh, okay, Will, what is your number three film of the year? Please don't tell me it's tragedy of Macbeth and I accidentally teed that up. Uh, no, um, I'll talk about tragedy of Macbeth later. Uh, oh, whether that is tease. In my list or in my honorable mentions, you'll have to wait okay. to find out. Um, <laughs> okay. But no, my number three pick is a film I'm sure you're going to be talking about real soon because it is Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Oh, uh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, my heart is full. 
Yeah, I, not surprising that's on my list, but uh, maybe a little surprising that it's uh, this low. And that's, you know, it's number three. So there you go. Um, yeah, so with his previous films, uh, Tangerine and The Florida Project, uh, Sean Baker, he's often focused on characters on the margins, people who are trying to make their way into a world that really just does, they just don't really seem to care about these people and often ignores them at basically any possible time. Uh, he really brings a lot of great empathy and curiosity to these characters, which I think is one of the key reasons why they feel so tangential and, uh, you know, in ways that feel very deliberate and delicate. Um, it's it's sort of a magic act. I think he's kind of perfected with that previous film, Florida Project, and one that I think he amusingly just kind of destroys or tries to destroy, rather, uh, with fairly exhilarating results with Red Rocket, a uh, much more acidetic and audacious character study that brings that sort of same curiosity and human interest to a character who is ultimately far less worthy of redemption <laughs> than uh, his other subjects in his previous films. Uh, Sam and Rex here is uh, probably giving was probably one of the most exhilarating performances of the year in a film that is just so bold and punchy and unsettling, but also madly entertaining as it journeys into the heart of Texas with this ne'er-do-well lead character who's basically just trying to hustle his way through every last connection that he has in his hometown after his uh, adult film industry ambitions didn't quite pan out as he hoped. Uh, the results are expectantly quite scummy and debauched and, uh, you know, chaotic, but uh, and also, I would say fairly perverse as well, both in ways that are applied and not. Uh, but it's hard not to be transfixed by uh, this character, Mikey Saber. Uh, he has, you know, uh, a tendency of making very, very bad choices. And uh, these terrible choices only get worse as he goes on throughout the film. But there's something... I would say kind of crudely charming about the whole thing about him, his whole deal. And you find yourself, I guess, uh, even against your best interests, sort of engaged with his plight. And the result is a character study and a social commentary that seems to once again be tackling the Trump era in a very deliberate, but, you know, obviously very meaningful and thoughtful way, allowing us to see the heart of the American dream, or as I joked once before, the American cream. And how people always sort of get lured by these folks who act like they have it all together, even when the evidence seems to point to the contrary, as it does here. The, the results, as I mentioned, are very darkly hilarious and kind of grossingly irreverent and relevant uh, in a film that just continues to resonate, me, resonate with me in a way that a lot of other films this year haven't quite reached those same heights. So, um, you know. It's kind of hard not to admire the hustle and bustle of the film, but it just really works on its own merits. And if you're willing to engage with the film in its sort of scummy ways, I think you're really going to find a lot to appreciate. So that made it a pretty easy pick for me in number three, Red Rocket. Sounds great. I know we just talked about this film on the show not too long ago, so listeners can check out that conversation. And, you know, I think that we we really covered it, I think, with that movie. Uh, my only edit there is, I'd say, American Strawberries and Cream. Well, it's right there. But that's fine. You're close. You're close. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get into our number two films of the year. We're getting close. We're going to do our number twos and then we'll do our honorable mentions and we'll finish this out with number one. So we're yeah. we're about we're about wrapping it up here. But OK, our number two. We'll call it a, a day, I guess. Or a we night. Will. A whole a whole thing. A whole year. All right. My number two film is Licorice Pizza. I just love this movie. Paul Thomas Anderson's latest just knockout punch of a movie. He just knows how to make movies. Like it's it's as simple as that. Movies of all kinds. It's amazing to me that this guy is able to make a movie like this and Phantom Thread and The Master and 
<laughs> you know, like there will be blood. It's just like you just go through the list and you're like, this man, like what what kind of filmmaker is he? He's an enigma. And I think we're all the better for it. I, Licorice Pizza is this deceptively small scale movie. It takes place in the 1970s and the, uh, the Valley in LA. And it's very much an LA movie, but I think it's more than that too. You know, cause I know we, we've talked about it before where I just like LA is not my favorite place. But one thing that I do get a lot out of LA is, you know, my appreciation of it, my appreciation of it through the movies. When I watch movies where, you know, LA is sort of like a character, perhaps if you would put it that way to be, annoying about it. Uh, I think that I can judge a lot of movies by the way that they depict LA. A movie like Nightcrawler, for example, really sticks out to me for the way that it's different in how it depicts LA. I think what Paul Thomas Anderson's doing here with Licorice Pizza, maybe at first glance is a little bit like I've seen this kind of movie before, but I think what he pulls off here in a more interesting way than we might expect is how he takes this sort of like quasi-romantic but slash platonic relationship between a 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old woman, and he finds a way to take these two people who should not be together, uh, legally and ethically, and he takes a movie like that, but he shows this is why people kind of come together anyway, and how sometimes you have a bond with somebody that is in- indefensible, certainly, and is something that is can be creepy, but he uses a whole movie to show us just sort of like what that really can mean to these two people in this time and what they can mean to each other and kind of just doing it through these really brilliant vignettes. I mean, walking through this movie, like every section of it is just so, every single one is so surprising. It's unpredictable. I just feel like I'm watching something truly like masterful uh, on display. He just has such a knack for telling stories that are interesting. Uh, Stories that like, if anybody else tried to tell them, I think that we would hate. We'd be like, this is terrible. (laughs) Like, You know, and I know this movie's gotten a lot of slack. I think some people have said that like, oh, it's getting a pass. I was like, it's only because Paul Thomas Anderson directed it that people are like hyping it up. And I could not disagree more. I, I think that this movie really is incredible. And obviously not everybody has to like it or love it, but I do think that it, it offers something truly, truly not useful, I guess, but, and not even insightful, but just really just thought provoking. It's, it gives you so much thought about people in general and this time and place. And, and like I said before, how people can kind of connect to each other, even if they don't go together super well, or they, you know, taking kind of two characters who are totally different ages, but showing all of these parallels between what they're going through, you know, this kid who wants to grow up too fast, this woman who feels like she's never going to grow up and just sort of showing like the opposites of that and heightening it in a way that is just so moving to me because I I think as dreamlike as this movie is, and as like, it is one of the most like escapist films as I was kind of referencing earlier, it is escapist, but at the same time, I think it's also revealing a lot of like human core truths about who we are and and where we belong in the world and all that stuff so yeah licorice pizza it's just like if you watch a movie this year this has got to be one of them because i think that it's well you know like it or love it i think it's going to have an impact that is definitely important uh it's definitely one of the more essential movies of the year i think for that reason hell yeah hell yeah <laughs> that's all that's all you got that's well, that's all you want to say well i have a lot more to say oh but i don't want to tip my hand don't want to t- oh, quickly. hey, I understand that. That's totally respectable. So then why don't we jump into then our number two film, or your number two film of the year. Sure. Uh, so this one, I don't expect to be on your list. If it is, I'll be very surprised. 
Um, well, I mean, I know your list mostly at this point, so I, I would be very surprised if it's on your list. But anyway, uh, my number two film is one that I don't think a lot of people have on their radar, but it's one that really stuck with me for a whole year now in a way that uh, I feel like a lot of people aren't giving it enough credit. And that is All Light Everywhere. And uh, wow. I'll say... Uh, this is a lot higher up than I thought it would be. I forgot that you had had that in your list at one point. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite a good film, and uh, so I saw this one as I mentioned before at Sundance, and I don't think I watched it at the time under maybe the best circumstances. I caught it pretty late at night. It was the last one I saw, maybe like the fourth or fifth day at Sundance, and when I pressed play, I wasn't quite sure I was it was going to be able to give it my full and undivided attention. You know, I tried to with every film we review on this show, but you know, sometimes that doesn't quite happen for extraneous purposes, but. Uh, any fears of that sort were quickly dismissed as soon as I started the film, which I find to be uh, quite an alarmingly and appropriately revealing look at surveillance. Uh, and certainly it's a film that I feel like combines the subjective and objective lens with really impressive and commendable ease, especially as director Theo Anthony ex- expertly nuanced documentary is unable to be like anything else I've seen this year, or really any other year, uh, especially in terms of its formal uh, convolutions and also its deep seated meditations on what it really means to be under constant surveillance and also being a filmmaker who has to kind of dictate the narrative in that respect. Uh, I feel like this film not only reveals the depths to which our trust can be shattered, especially in a police system that, frankly, just doesn't always, always look out for the best interests of its citizens, but also the ways in which cinema and narrative storytelling as art forms can perhaps be uh, mischieving. Yeah, no, I was right before. Mis- uh, mis- uh, what am I trying to say? It's late. Uh, Not mischieving? Mis- mysterious? Mystique? What, what are you doing? Uh, What's I happening? <laughs> I'm combusting. Uh, <laughs> this movie is that good? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, yes. Uh, miss, uh, mischievy, I don't know what I'm, I don't know, misleading, I think is what the word I was looking for. Okay, what were you uh, with that? <laughs> there you go. Uh, to me, it's a pretty astounding film. It's, uh, I guess, fittingly ironic, fairly oblique in that it is at once eye-opening and deceiving. It's, uh, it can be argued, I guess, that Anthony or Theo Anthony is being uh, too broad in terms of like what he's trying to focus here. I think the some people might perceive that to be a limitation of the film, but I think his willingness and eagerness to be exploring such a wide-ranging thesis is uh, ultimately very compelling and thrilling to me. This is the sort of film that, uh, you know, I, after seeing so many documentaries that tend to follow a fairly conventional talking head narrative focus approach, it just makes those look amateurish because the layers that I think Anthony uh, is able to find with the very nature of human evolution and mirroring that with technology's evolution is very sinister, but also very illuminating. And I think it kind of gets to the root of what compelling cinema should and could be. It's a, you know, documentary that uh, it's pretty thorough and pretty dense and i can understand why people are not going to really want to give it the time or day or really critically reflect on the film too much but uh it's i just think it's simply one of the best films of the year and certainly my favorite documentary of the year and while ironically and uh depressingly i feel like it's getting fairly overlooked uh if you have the chance to see on hulu i think it's well worth your time and attention so that is all light everywhere yeah like even though i don't i don't really like it nearly as much as you do it's pretty low on my top of the year, but I got, I got to say with this documentary, I think that it it's cool. It's just like a cool documentary. It's about a cool subject, but a kind of a depressing subject at the same time. And yeah, I can, I can definitely understand, you know, the, 
the response that you're having to it. It's certainly, it's certainly a movie that I think uh, hit you at a certain time that was just right. And maybe that just wasn't the case for me. I don't know. I, I think I saw this at night as well, but I don't think it was as late. But uh, yeah, I wish I liked it more. But it is certainly a good good piece of uh, filmmaking, good piece of documentary filmmaking that I think a lot of people should check out because I think it is an important subject to be sure. But this is the this is the moment you've been waiting for. We're going to get mm. into our number ones. First, as always, we're going to start with our honorable mentions. We're going to knock these out. These are films that made it into around like our top 30 or so that we just want to mention for whatever reason and can be all the hidden gems and whatnot. And one thing I got to mention right off the bat here is that this is an interesting, like I'm looking at our list right now. Cause we, you know, we didn't know each other's lists. You know, we had like vague impressions cause you sent me your top 10, which is different from what it is right now because you saw more stuff and vice versa. Same for me back when we were doing the best films of the year for the young folks. And yeah, just this solidifies for me. This is a bit of more of an indie kind of year for us. Those are the movies we sure. responded the most to. And that's always fun to see. I think the, yeah, the, the film here with the biggest budget by far is Luca. And for you, I think the biggest budget, I don't even know. Is it Annette? Uh, no, it's probably the French Dispatch. It's probably my number one film, which I haven't uh, revealed yet. Oh yeah, that's right. We haven't gone to your number one, so hmm, I wonder what it's going to be. I'm so curious. Oh what boy, could what, be what, what could it be? <laughs> um, Last night in Soho. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Okay, so honorable mention time. I'll go through mine real fast uh, since I give you a little bit of a break here. But yeah, my honorable mentions. You know, they're all over the place in terms of like subjects matter and like different things. And I, I'm definitely happy with these movies and uh, just sort of the year in general. I'll just say that. But uh, I'm your man. I definitely was for a while was in my top 20 West Side Story. Really, really Doug Spielberg's West Side Story. Uh, I would include Judas and the Black Messiah here, even though it, it feels like a 2020 movie, even though we both saw it 2021. But it, yeah, just one of those movies because of the Oscars, it feels like we already kind of went through that. Uh, Power of the Dog, uh, which I think is at this point probably a front runner up with Belfast to be best picture. And uh, I think Jane Campion could be getting her next uh, her next Oscar for this one. Uh, Bo Burnham Inside, which we talked about. Bergman Island, which we talked about, of course. Uh, Shiva Baby. Love Shiva Baby. So good. Uh, just a wonderful, like, tight film. Like, that, that, this is one of, that's one of those gems that I just think that I'm always going to have in the back of my mind when somebody's looking for a film. It's just like, going to get the job done. My favorite superhero film of the year was The Suicide Squad. And I think by a decent margin, Spider-Man No Way Home is not in my honorable mentions. It's not far from my honorable mentions, but yeah, it's just not there. It's in like my top 40 around there. But Suicide Squad is in my top 25. I, th I think that film just, yeah, is exactly what I want from superhero movies. Just a me kind of thing. Petite Maman, Celine Scalama's latest film. Uh, not as great as Portrait of a Lady on Fire, of course, but certainly, certainly worth checking out. King Richard, which I just thought was so just satisfying on every level. And I think Will Smith, if he gets the Oscar, deserves it. Riders of Justice, which I wish could have gotten in my top 20. It was pretty close. And another film that deconstructs, you know, sort of the revenge fantasy trope. Probably the best film this year about found families. That's like a really about that. Uh, the Summit of the Gods, another great animated film. Yeah, again, great animated, great year for animation. That's an adult. That's a film that's animated and it's for adults. Uh, very worth checking out. Superior, based on the short film, but it's extended. I think. Uh, I guess I shouldn't count uh, Superior on the count of three, since those didn't technically didn't get, really get releases. Actually, Superior might have, and I've just. Forgot, I wasn't one hundred percent sure if Superior got released or not, so I wasn't. I wasn't going to call you out, but if you're going to call <laughs> yourself out. Yeah. Um, um, 
And then Encanto. I thought Encanto was really, really good. A really great Disney film and really good music too. Some of my favorite songs of the year. Uh, I'd say, say Dosé de Guitas is probably, probably my favorite song of 2021. Spencer, uh, probably one of the, uh, Kristen Stewart, one of my favorite uh, actress performances of the year would be, if not for worst person in the world. Benedetta, which I absolutely love, as you know, uh, just, that movie just hit me exactly in the right way. Paul Verhoeven, what a filmmaker. Um, plan B, probably my, not probably, my favorite like straight up comedy. Like there's other films above this that are technically comedies, but more as a subgenre, right? But Plan B, at least especially like as a teen comedy, blew me away in terms of its humor and its heart and uh, loved Plan B quite a bit. Uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines. I know a movie not you you didn't love at all, but uh, that Netflix movie just, uh, it, it hit me, it hit me just right. I, I really like, I think that's probably the funniest movie of the whole year and certainly one of the best animated. It's really close, like between that, Luca and CryptoZoo and, and so many others, I just thought we just, ah, we got so many good animated films this year. I don't care what you say, Will. Uh, the French Dispatch, uh, which you already talked at length about and I did, uh, got to touch on it. Summer of Soul, which I'm so sad. It was in my top 10 for so long. It just got pushed down a bit, but yeah, I absolutely loved Summer of Soul. What a, what a movie, what a film. And the movie that was my number one for most of this year, which I'm not really going to, I'm not counting here because it didn't get a release date this year as I was hoping. So I'm not talking about it here. It's not even really an honorable mention, but uh, one for the road, you know, if I, if it did have its release date, it would be in my top 10. It'd probably be my number two film of the year above licorice pizza, but it's not one for the road. Great film, but uh, we'll, we'll have to touch on that more next year. I suppose you saw it too. So um, yep. down the line, we'll probably get to that, but those are my honorable mentions. Will you are up. All right. Yeah. Um, I thought we had to limit the number of honorable mentions that we had. So uh, my list is a little bit shorter. Um, oh, apologies. But, no, you're good. I didn't know if we had a cutoff or not. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy got really close to putting that in my top 10. I think I just need to stew on a little bit more. That might eventually knock out Tatane or Taun. Um, like likewise, Shiva Baby was on my list for quite a long time, and it just barely uh, eked its way out. I saw that film at TIFF in 2020. It stuck with me for quite a while. I liked that movie, as you mentioned, quite a lot. Uh, another Sundance documentary that I really enjoyed that I feel is being sorely overlooked is The Most Beautiful Boy in the World. Uh, likewise, a uh, film I saw at Sundance that I liked it a lot is Judas and the Black Messiah, as you mentioned. Um, also the Hulu exclusive in and of itself, a uh, film that I went into fairly blind as we discussed on the show and I found it to be quite a uh, surprise. So I really appreciate that one. Likewise, another Sundance documentary I really liked, President, uh, centered around the Zimbabwe presidential election. A really good piece of film journalism and uh, unfortunately quite an infuriating film for a number of reasons, uh, intentionally so I should mention. Uh, so really, if you you have a chance to check that one out. Benedetta, the Paul Verhoeven film that was also on your list, like that one a lot. Good, giddy, fun, uh, unholy time that was. Uh, the Hand of God, the Netflix film, uh, just uh, just quite a film. Uh, that's all I'll say for now. Uh, I was tragic. wondering if it would make the top ten. Okay, uh, no, not quite. No, it's it's probably. I don't know. Would that be the top twenty or at least like top thirty? Uh, Tragedy Macbeth. Uh, maybe a film I'll like more as I uh, reflect on it and see it more, hopefully. But for now, like it a lot. Uh, definitely one that's easily in my honorable mentions, just not quite in my top 10. Likewise, a uh, film you mentioned, Summer of Soul. Uh, really good Sundance documentary as well, and one that uh, could very well win the Oscar, uh, and I think fairly deservingly so. 
uh, The Disciple, another film I saw at TIFF back in 2020, a film that I know I liked a little bit more than you did, but it's on Netflix. And Netflix is really just uh, just not giving it the the proper due. So if you can True. check that and one out. And it's grown on me. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's a film that uh, definitely has grown on me a lot. Uh, a movie you mentioned that was on your list, CryptoZoo. Uh, also another film that you mentioned in your honorable mentions, The Power of the Dog. Uh, also, I really enjoyed The Humans uh, and Stillwater, the Tom McCarthy film. Also, The Souvenir Part 2, uh, Petite Maman, which you mentioned, as well as West Side Story, as you mentioned as well. Uh, and then I also got Flea, About Endlessness, uh, the Roy Anderson film. I don't think we've talked about that one on the show before. Um, this one I might need your help pronouncing, Kio Vadas Aida. Um, I don't think I'm saying that right at all, but I apologize. Your guess is as good as mine. Okay. <laughs> Sorry uh and spencer so those are my honorable mentions i'm a fan of a lot of those movies for sure yeah so i heard a lot i was just like ah yeah good movie uh only a few where i'm just like ah, that one i didn't like as much but you know that's fine that's how it happens in fact i think that this year i we were on like a very similar wavelength compared to previous years which is alarming to say the least probably terrible news probably a, a bad omen but We'll have to persevere anyway. All right. So those are our honorable mentions. Lots of good stuff there. But let's just get into our number one films of 2021. And I'll, I'll start with mine. And this solidifies that this is, this is the year with the most overlap between us because my number one is Red Rocket, which I think you knew was coming because it's been firmly my number one for a while now. And I, I, looked, I looked into this while you were, you were talking and stuff, but I looked at our previous top tens. And this is by far, yeah, us having three films, uh, the three of the same films on our list. That's a first. Never had that before. We've had one film in common and we've had two films in common um, about half the time. And so it is interesting to me. It, it really is that like this, this was the year because I feel like we had so many different kinds of movies and I saw more movies this year. Uh, we both did, right? Like we both saw more movies than ever. And yet we have more overlap than usual. So that's I don't know what to make of that, but anyway, Red Rocket's my favorite film of the year. I, you already mentioned Simon Rex's performance in this and just Sean Baker, you know, really solidifying himself as I think one of the, not just one of the best filmmakers working right now, but I do think that he is one of the most important and essential because I think what Sean Baker is doing, unlike many other filmmakers of his generation, he's a guy I think in his like late forties, he is developing a style like he is developing his own cinematic language that certainly is not like whole cloth. He didn't invent it. And there was a great video on Cinefix that I think really crystallized this for me in a very profound way that I think has really stuck with me. He is creating the American neorealist film uh, in a way that I think we've seen before. I think it reminds me of Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Uh, that was one of your favorite films of last year, I want to say. My number and one last year. Your number one, yeah. yeah. And I think that is, an, that is an American neorealist film. I think The Florida Project, Tangerine, these are movies that are essentially taking what was so striking and innovative about the Italian neorealism film post-World War II and essentially doing the same thing in the U.S., it's sort of taking what American culture is really like and taking these huge risks with virtually unknown actors a lot of the time or actors you wouldn't expect and putting them in roles that you wouldn't expect and telling stories about people that are emotionally distanced, but also varied because you can watch a movie like Florida Project, which is so distressing. 
You can watch, like you already mentioned, Red Rocket. When you really break down what this film is, it's distressing. It it hurts to watch this movie, but it's a movie with humor in it. It's it's a movie that you watch and you you enjoy watching it, but you're watching something that should be making you mad or sad or stressed out. But instead, in my sense, this is kind of the thing that I think um, movies like Uncut Gems, which I really appreciate. It wasn't my favorite film by far of that year, but what where Uncut Gems kind of lost me. It was like, okay, you're telling a story about America as it is without any really without what I was kind of hoping for, like an ingredient that I think would make it come together. And that's just the sense of it all, like how it all lands, how it all kind of comes together. It kind of, not to, you know, harp on that movie at all, but I'm just sort of like highlighting why a movie like this, which is of a, of a piece in terms of like, it's about a despicable person and kind of trying to like unpack what that means for them. I think that Red Rocket just does something that I want more from films in general, which is depicting the American person and the relationship between these predatory people and the innocence that America like projects to itself. Because everybody can watch this movie, see this character who calls herself Strawberry and get the metaphor that she is quite literally somebody who you know, at first appearance is this innocent, you know, you know, person that you think like the whole future ahead of her, but she willingly steps into this sort of despicable sort of like orbit of this person. And it's her choice. And I think it's just such a, I think Sean Baker is just so good at taking not metaphors really, but just, just taking stories about people They have other layers to them. I know I talked a lot of this. I talked about this a lot very recently on our episode, but I just have to reemphasize that he is telling a story about what America is right now in a more honest way than ever. That is not just about the Trump era, but it's sort of about like why the Trump era, you know, and why there are people, you know, it, it doesn't do it in a dismissing way. It doesn't gawk at its subjects. It doesn't do it in a way that's like overtly political or partisan. But like at the same time, uh, there's a great quote from a movie I, I just watched called uh, Bergman Island, I think it was, where somebody was like, I'm apolitical. I want to please everybody. Or no, that was uh, Parallel Mothers. I'm mixing things up a bit. And, and by the way, we didn't mention, uh, I did see Memoria as well. Didn't make my honorable mentions, but good film. Okay, I was curious where you landed on that film. Good movie, good movie. Yeah, yeah just not one of my favorites. But Very excited uh, to see Very that. good Tilda Swinton mm. performance, yeah. But you know, this idea of like, there's being apolitical, which essentially just means you're a coward. You know, you just don't really want to have a point of view because you want to please everybody. And there is what I think Red Rocket is, which is like, yeah, it's, it has a point of view, but that point of view can be dissected and analyzed and unpacked in so many unique, blissful ways, uh, despite being through this, like, just one one performance out of any other, Simon Rex, who I just think, I, what he's doing in this is just so miraculous. I, I cannot believe that this actor had it in him and he makes it look easy. Uh, I also have to shout out Chris Burgot, who co-wrote the script. I think the script is so close to just being like, there is no perfect script, but it's just so close to perfect for me because I, I just don't think it misses any beats. I think there's a lot of, like with Florida Project, people are split on the ending, you know, because I, th- I think that speaks to what I was saying earlier. People want a specific thing from the ending. They don't get it. And I think that that's what I love about it. I, I think that it, like Florida Project, it ends in a way that is like, whoa, what, what was that? You know, and you actually have to like sit with it. It's kind of like we were talking about with Sopranos. That's why I really like the Sopranos ending because it's just not clear cut. You kind of have to put yourself into it 
not just read something out of it. And I just wish more films were like that. So I love seeing Red Rocket. I, I love this movie for the filmmakers it's going to inspire. The people who are going to watch this and Florida Project and Tangerine and Starlet and all those and be like, I can make a film. I I watched, I have like an emotional understanding with this filmmaker. I can do this too. And I'm really happy for all the filmmakers that he inspires. I think Sean Baker is just doing great work. The fact that he made this film kind of, you know, he had it in his back pocket. He had, they, he and Burach had it in a drawer and they made this instead of something else because of COVID. And I think we're, we're pretty fortunate <laughs> that they just had this sitting in, sitting in the, the back of their heads for so long. And they they made it happen. The stars aligned. And here we are, Red Rocket, uh, my favorite film of 2021. And very happy about that. And nice. It's cool that it's it's high up for you too. Number three. I wasn't expecting yeah. that, but I, that yeah. thrills me. I don't know why you weren't expecting it. I was quite favorable on the film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much in line with everything you said there. I'm, I guess, a little bit higher in my estimation on Uncut Gems, but I do agree that I do think the Safdie brothers and um, uh, John Baker are pretty much contemporaries, and that they have this sort of spontaneous feel to their films, and certainly the way that those those films are made have uh, quite a deal of uh, spontaneity to them. But at the same time, there is something very precise and very uh, thoughtful about how they present their films that uh, really comes together in a, like you said, fairly miraculous way. And so both those films are quite good. And I'm definitely uh, very understanding for why you put Red Rockets high as you did. And I'm not far from it. So, yeah. Sounds great. And uh, yeah, I forgot to mention too. That's that other A24 film. And oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what it is about me and A24. It just feels like almost every year. Where, summer uh, A24 films tend to be my number one. This is not a summer film, but it did premiere right. at Cannes, so it's close. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> that's well, my number we, one. We are a couple of film bros, so we uh, have to like the A24 films. Yeah, we don't have a choice. Yeah. It's in our contracts. Yeah. It is so, our contract. You know, you know. Disney, uh, whatever, for whatever reason, they're the ones that are doing the contracts as well. We have <laughs> to love the superhero movies, and we have to love the A24 movies. And that's why um, your number one film is Black Widow. Yeah, what if? Um <laughs> what if that's uh, your favorite film the yeah what if <laughs> Disney yeah. plus show what if right. uh, okay we'll ash and no more no more cut let's cut some no more chase yeah no what more is clown it? around um it is a film that is also on your list very high and i don't think it's going to come as a big surprise because it is Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza speaking of a safty brother by yeah. the way that's four that's four films we had four films right. overlap this year. That's double yeah. what we usually have. I was going to confound Yeah, I was going to say something, but I didn't want to spoil the fun. So, yeah, Licorice Pizza, you know, what can I say about this film? It's I, I find it weird that even though Paul Thomas Anderson's my favorite filmmaker, I, I have a hard time describing what it is about Paul Thomas Anderson's films that are so wonderful. Uh, it's something weird where it's You're just not like. Alone. I, it's it's very easy to be verbose about his films. There's something that they, they elicit such passionate responses, but I, I have trouble verbalizing what it is that makes me feel so deeply about these films. Like they, they, they travel so deep into my subconscious. They kind of bury themselves into my mind in very clear and present ways. 
Uh, and, you know, it's easy to kind of point out the like technical prowess of the film. You know, you mentioned a lot of it already. But I mean, Anderson, he's only continuing to adapt as a storyteller and as a filmmaker. And I think he's only becoming more of an expert in his formalistic approach. I mean, obviously, I think there are a lot of clear ways in which like his characters are getting stronger. I think his empathy is getting better. I think his confidence in allowing things to kind of play out a little bit more naturalistically, but also still being very stylistic and true to his style makes it clear that he is evolving in very clear and meaningful ways. But I mean, when it comes to a movie like Licorice Pizza, which I mean, you know, has received no shortage of scrutiny online, as we mentioned with all the discourse. Um, but I think what makes it so enriching and, and so spellbinding to me is that there's something obviously very adolescent about the film, but there's that exuberance that comes from that adolescent feeling as if like you're almost sort of seeing a film for the first time. It's a very rare and odd feeling, especially for two people like us who watch so many films so regularly. But, uh, you know, a film like this, which, you know, it's an incredibly hard film to make. I mean, especially because it's coming. It's one of the first films, I believe, that was made during the onset of the pandemic. I mean, uh, if it wasn't the first, it was certainly among the first. Um, but, you know, the ease in which that Anderson commands the style and form of the film, certainly uh, including his control of his newcomer actors, in this case, Cooper Hoffman and a lot of Haim. Uh, it, and eases them into the film with these, you know, seasoned veterans like Bradley Cooper and John Penn and Joseph Cross. And as you mentioned, Benny Safdie and Tom Waits, uh, it, it just it's really astounding. And there's like a kind of hangdog feel to this, you know, hangout film that it, it feels so lived in and historically accurate, but also just very emotionally vulnerable and very searching in ways that are, are kind of hard to pinpoint exactly, but just feel so accurate and feel so meaningful and feel so true to life in a way that even though there is obviously this very dreamlike quality to a lot of his films, like it doesn't, it, it's not to say these movies are very realistic, but it just feels like when you walk into them, you feel like everything makes sense and everything is right. Even when there is that chaos, even when there is that kind of like channeling sense of just like dread and suspense that kind of builds up. Uh, I mean, Anderson has evoked his influences quite a lot in his previous films. Certainly, I mean, Martin Scorsese and his earlier works, as well as Robert Downey Sr., who the film is dedicated to this time. Uh, you know, he's found great success with uh, mimicking their film but uh, I, I find it so fascinating that he is clearly trying to evoke Altman in this film. Uh, I think this is probably his most Altman-esque film, even more so than Magnolia. But as I mentioned before, it only continues to stay true to his own voice. And I think that's something that becomes more and more apparent with each successive film of his. There's that sort of like woozy, wonderful feeling of just following your friend and kind of indulging in this kind of reckless passions that they have and just celebrating the general camaraderie of being with your collaborators and just doing something that feels sort of reckless, but just feels right to yourself. I, I think at the core of the film, and a lot has been said about this, I'm not really trying to add to the discourse in that way, but for me, the, the parallels and the ways that they divert from one another, in this case, Gary Valentine, who has this sort of reckless determination, this endless hustling desire to escape his age, be older than he is, kind of adopt adulthood prematurely, uh, alongside Alana, who is obviously very adrift, who is becoming uh, more and more uncertain about what she wants to be, even as she is getting older and more into her 20s, in this case, the back half of her 20s, um, that 
parallel where they have these two characters who are in a, unable to really find exactly what they're looking for. And they have that sort of connection that is very taboo, but also feels very uh, intertwined. That, that sort of reckless indulgence and that adolescent desire to have those entangling feelings is obviously very complex. But at the same time, I think Paul Thomas Anderson accomplishes that feel in a way that feels very knowledgeable and very lived in and exact. But he understands these characters. He doesn't really talk down to them or feels like he's like condemning them, even when they do very bad or potentially dangerous things. Uh, he's just celebrating that sort of messiness in a way that the film isn't messy as a result. I mean, obviously, the narrative isn't streamlined and people have been critical of that. But it just feels so euphoric in a way that I think the best films can be. It just kind of feels like you're in this kind of blissful state of being in a grand cinematic world. And even though the film isn't super epic in its approach, it feels what you want out of cinema because it has all those kind of tender nuances in a very crisp celluloid cinematic way that's just very spellbinding, very, very entertaining, but also just a very rich and poignant film. And, you know, it's the type of film that makes you realize why you love watching films in the first place. If you want to be pedantic or cliche or whatever the word might be. Uh, yeah, it's just it's a very, very increasingly rare cinematic experience to get something like this. And it's something that I want to celebrate quite openly and consistently for that reason. So therefore, it's pretty easily my number one favorite film of the year. I mean, Licorice Pizza. Uh, just what a good film. And I'm kind of thinking, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize, I wasn't even thinking this movie would have a big budget, but you were right, $40 million budget, which is one of the biggest budgets between the two of us, just in general. I think Luca is the only other one that I think has a bigger budget. I think Luca's probably around $100 million or so. And yeah, everything else we have is like tens of million, you know, like maybe 50, I think a net's like 15 million. <laughs> Red Rocket's probably less than 10. I don't even know. But that's fine. Who cares? As long as the movie's great. I mean, Green Knight, I actually forgot to look into Green Knight. I imagine that budget, I think that budget's like 20 to 30 million. I think it's 15 million. Is it? We're about Isaac to find Felber out right now. I think tweet that said 15 it was 15 million. million. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Isaac, we, get, we can count on Isaac, that's for sure. But what a year for low-budget films, I guess, in that respect. Uh, cer they certainly kept us going throughout the whole year, as it, as it is clearly apparent. Mm. But that'll do it for our top 10 movies of 2021 that was, as always, a ton of fun. I feel like we really covered the year in film and what these films meant to us. And that's that's it. I have no closing thoughts. I guess we can just get on out of here, Will Ashton. We got stuff sure, to do. Sure. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I just hope next year is even better. That's right. So. Next week on the show, we will be talking about Scream 2022, the new Scream mm. movie. Can't wait to talk about that film. I'm chomping at the bit to uh, to really get into that one i i cannot wait and uh i'm, I'm anxious for you to watch it so we well, can talk about it uh not just on the show but in general yeah i mean it'll be the tiebreaker film for me because i liked i mean i love scream one and i really like scream two not crazy about scream three and have mixed feelings about scream four but uh, i'm probably overdue this could push for it who knows I'm i liked it though so for, oh here's yeah. the problem well i liked it so you're probably gonna hate it actually that's oh, not really who actually i don't know because it seems like we're pretty aligned on mm. the scream franchise so far so it would be the first time we disagree so it's gonna be a well, first no matter what we'll talk about it next week <laughs> that sounds good to me yeah uh, that's it for us this week we'll see you all thanks as always for listening it's been a great year here's a 2022 let's do it i'm john agroni from the internet california and if you're in pennsylvania i'm washing See you next time.